Hello, everybody. Bradley here, and I'm so excited to be back bringing you Harry Potter podcast coverage. I'm just popping in at the beginning to let you know that this podcast is completely unhinged. Did you ask for a two and a half hour rundown of the first Harry Potter movie with me and Rachel? Probably not. Do we talk about this movie for two and a half hours? Absolutely. Does it go absolutely off the rails at multiple points? Yes, it does. So I just wanted to give you a warning up front. There is a lot of analysis of this film in the next two and a half hours. But if what you want is like a critic's eye view of this movie, this probably isn't the podcast for you. If what you want is two goofballs hanging out and having a great time <laughs> talking about Harry Potter, then that's what you're in for. Very similar to kind of our other podcasts we've done on the chapters from the book. However, with just with the movie, there's less of an outline. There's a lot more going on. We're kind of just jumping around all over the place. And because we didn't quite have that structure, we just kind of let loose and had a good time. I would also like you to know that this is the one episode where neither Rachel and I were drinking, which is fucking shocking because if you had asked which episode were you both wasted in, it would be this one. So we were both completely sober when this podcast uh, happened, which I'm not sure is a good or a bad thing. And at some point in the first 10 minutes or so, my internet died out for like 30 seconds. So there's some weird editing habuki magic I'm going to have to do to fix that. Let's talk about Harry Potter, though. Hello, everybody, and welcome into Let's Dive Deep Harry Potter. Today, Rachel and I are here to, to kind of cap off our first book marathon of podcasting with the first movie, uh, The Philosopher's Stone or The Sorcerer's Stone, if you're watching it or trying to stream it. In America, we don't really have as much of an outline for this, unlike the books where there's easy chapters that you can kind of just follow in order. This is more of a loosey-goosey hangout chat about a fun movie. We'll talk about it as its own movie. We'll talk about it as an adaptation. Uh, the good news for those listening and following this podcast specifically is that fucking all the teachers are still getting fired. So if you're here for the <laughs> Will, Brad, and Rachel fire the Hogwarts professors, um, yes, there's lots of that. So we're still good on that front. I suppose the best place to start, though, Rachel, is we'll just get right into it. Uh, spoilers, mm -hmm. we're talking about all of Harry Potter. If you haven't read it, it's been out for a while. You should go and read and watch whatever you want to read and watch and then come here and there will be swearing and stuff. It don't. This is not for kids. All right. Those are all the warnings. Uh, let's start with our relationship to these movies and then we'll get into our opinions about this movie and maybe some of the other movies. Um, what is your relationship to the movies, Rachel? OK, so these movies are really special to me. Um, so I was one of those kids that thought. Hermione was pronounced Hermione when I was reading the books. Classic. So, right. So seeing the movies for the first time was a bit of a shift for me. It corrected all of my misconceptions that I had while I was reading the book, which was important for me because I was still pretty young. I was like, oh, God, when the first one came out, I was nine. So it's still good to like learn that you can be wrong about things. But the books were special to me, I think the first three that were out by then, maybe the fourth, because they created a world in my head. Uh, and it was the first time that I had seen a world that I had only thought of kind of come to life before my eyes. So I could always imagine from the books what my life would be like if I were a wizard in that world, if I could go to Hogwarts. But I could never actually picture it. So getting to see the stories play out like right right in front of me was a dream come true. And and like going ahead to like the simultaneous releases, not simultaneous, but consecutive releases of the books and the movies throughout the years. I don't know that there will ever be a phenomenon like that for me again. 
you know, reading a book and then knowing that while I'm waiting for the next book, a movie will come out while I'm waiting. The closest contemporary thing I can think of is Game of Thrones. And obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but spoilers, it was pretty disappointing. Um, but this one really uh, pulled it off for me. So it literally took me from the age of seven when I started reading the first book through to the end of my first year of university. So that was uh, really formative for me and it was really special. So these movies hold like a really, really special place in my heart. All right. Wonderful. Um, my relationship to these movies is quite similar. Um, I'm not going to talk about my opinion on how good I think the movies are, <laughs> but my relationship to the movies is kind of similar. Um, I did the first two books before I did the first movie. I kind of forget exactly in which order this was all released and how old I was because I was like five, six, seven. Like it all kind of blends together now. But I did the books first. So books first, then movies. Uh, I was not introduced to Harry Potter by the films. By the time I was watching this film, whenever it was released, I had already read the first and second book, at least possibly the third. But that's around where we're at is the same as you. And then I did the same thing. Harry Potter was coming out as I was growing up. Um, I'm a roughly similar age to the books and or the characters in Harry Potter. So uh, books would come out. I read the books. Then we catch up with the movies. And that was super fun. And kind of regardless of what you think about the movies, whether you loved them or hated them or loathed them or appreciated them or didn't appreciate them, what's undeniable is I think the Game of Thrones reference is so, so true, is you were a part of a cultural phenomenon and it was a wave. It was a tsunami and you were swimming, right? Whether you had the fucking life jacket and you were doing good or whether you were drowning <laughs> was up to you um but you were in the world of harry potter and i appreciate the films for that like getting to be especially through the pandemic um i think it was a different appreciation uh, you and i are both super pop culture nerds like more than the average person so you and i get this feeling frequently um, but i know a lot of people in my life where harry potter and, and, and for some harry potter and game of thrones have been the only two big pop culture phenomenons that they've been a part of from start to finish. And that feeling of community, of appreciation, of loving the same thing as other people, of having that connective tissue. Uh, Harry Potter has helped bridge uh, like a lot of divides in my life, like people I wouldn't otherwise like or socialize with or whatever. The one thing we can kind of agree on is that we really loved Harry Potter and that was really formative. Uh, for us and um yeah growing up like i feel like the harry potter films going to the theater marked a different age for me every time i went to the cinema uh, when i went to see movie one it was out on dvd so i didn't get to go to the mm. theater i watched it on dvd and then by the time um number three came around it was a full-fledged thing in my friend group and my friend's mom her name is judy bless judy i remember we all like lined up outside the cinema and we got our little lego night buses and we watched the third movie together as a friend group and we were like 11 maybe 10 whatever right so that was super cool and then the goblet of fire comes out and i'm becoming a teenager so i get to go to the movie goblet of fire was the first movie i saw by myself where my mom just dropped me off at the theater and I could go into the movie, just me and my friends, no adults in the cinema with us. We all got dropped off and picked up and that was super cool. And then I remember Deathly Hallows uh, part one came out and I was still in high school, like very close to the legal drinking age where Rachel and I are is younger than America. So this isn't as shady. Um, <laughs> But I was, I think, 18, maybe late 17, possibly mm. just turned 18, 
for part one. Um, and me and my friends all like snuck in and found a boot and got a little tipsy <laughs> and went into the Deathly Hallows, right? And so like I can draw a line through my life going to see these films in the cinema mm -hmm. and each one marked all the way from being able to go to my first movie without parents to going to my first movie drunk was a whole thing. And yeah, so that's my that's my opinion on these films as 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 they relate to kind of um, how they've impacted my life is I can draw a through line um, from mm -hmm. my kind of movie loving cine cinephile life from these films. Like these were some of the first films I watched. They were some of the ones I was most excited to go th see in the cinema. Um, these are the ones I went with the biggest friend groups. These are the ones that uh, I watch frequently now with the most amount of people. And so, yeah, I just think as a cultural phenomenon that brings people together and makes you appreciate watching movies with people, um, these films have been like a 12 out of 10 experience in that regard. Just for, for cinema in general, it was such a special time, I think, for fantasy and sci-fi. Because, so I remember you would have been, you're, you're oh, you, <clears throat> just enough younger than me that maybe this wasn't the phenomenon for you that it was for me. But right around 2001 is when Harry Potter came out um fellowship of the ring came out phantom menace came out oh see so yeah so i missed star wars and lord of the rings i did both of those as adult as an adult like those yeah. i missed those yeah, yeah and it was and as a young kid who i was already kind of leaning way more towards fantasy media than you know like action romance whatever other genre i could pick um it was such a special time to be able to like every year or maybe several times a year depending on what was coming out um to to be able to go experience uh these movies in the theater i know like on boxing day every year we would go to see the new lord of the rings which obviously is not the movie that we're talking about but uh harry potter kind of had the same phenomenon where it was it was a special thing to go like i, I still remember my mom through her work she got us into an early screening of Deathly Hallows 2. Sick, yeah. And like That's a big deal. That... That's a big deal. <laughs> not that early. It was half an hour early. So <laughs> we got I, to... I, that's a big deal for Harry Potter. So we got to start Deathly Hallows 2 at 11:30 when it was supposed to start uh showing at midnight. And I still remember that. I had come home from my first year first year of university and got my friend my sister my mom because that was the amount of tickets that we could get and we just like all cried in the theater <laughs> together it was just a really special time i think for for cinema and movies and i carried that with me yeah i mean i i agree i think we're on the same page here i think a lot mm -hmm. of people roughly our age give or take a couple of years on either end are, are going to have a very similar experience with these mm -hmm. movies and there's some of the movies I, I revisit most as an adult with other people like a lot of other movies i'll watch by myself but there's so many times where you're at a friend's place or like someone's broken up with somebody or it's christmas time and it's like people's comfort movies and so you kind of just end up watching them with people often which i think helps socially like these movies have a very social and kind of comforting place in my movie kind of bank in my brain if that makes sense this is the editing Hibuki Magic interruption because my internet went down for 30 seconds during this recording. We're going to pick it back up when Rachel and I were reunited over Discord.
What insightful thing did you say that I missed? Oh, just that the movies, like, separately from being culturally relevant are just a real social thing because mm, mm-hmm. right you always watch these with friends you always watch them like like they're comfort movies is more what i was trying to say like you always watch yeah. them like someone's going through a breakup or it's christmas time and you want to feel good or you're sick like these are big sick movies for me you always watch them yeah. when you're sick you never mm-hmm. like i never walk home happy and healthy from a day at work and be like i'm gonna watch the harry potter movies it's always no. when you're sick or like something's happened and you want to be comforted in some way um, which I yeah. think is a huge success of the movies that they fill that kind of role. Um, yeah, they're like the movie equivalent of comfort food is, I guess, what I was saying. Yeah, I mean, like we did the the Christmas meme thing. Um, that Instagram reel was like, if you start the Harry Potter movie at exactly this time, uh, Ron will say Happy Christmas to you right at midnight. <laughs> and was so it we, good? Did you feel good about it? it? It was fucking phenomenal. It was great. <laughs> Even my parents, who like they usually go to bed at like ten, they stayed up to hear the Happy Christmas. Uh, so that was uh, that was a really nice thing. That's pretty funny. It's just like it's just like a warm hug. All right, before my internet dies again, let's get into how we feel about this movie. Um, okay. I think I'll start here. Um, I think this movie overall is one of the better movies of the the eight films. I want to be I want to be honest with the audience before they dive deep into these podcasts. I don't love these movies nearly as much as most Harry Potter people, but I I just don't love them. I can appreciate so much about them, but the parts that I don't love about them, I've never quite been able to drop. And I don't know why that is. And my opinions on these movies change over time because they are very much my opinion on the adaptation from a thing that I loved. And as I get more adaptations of other things that I love, I have a better scale by which I can grade the Harry Potter movies against, right? So as Game of Thrones comes through as an adaptation of books that I've read, uh, Lord of the Rings is another adaptation of books that I've read. There are a lot of adaptations um, of books that I've read. Foundation is a series that's ongoing right now based on books that I've read. Normal People was a TV show based on a book that I've read. I have, I'm have i better able to adjudicate how I feel about any one of those things as an adaptation, having more inputs. However, my broad opinions have not changed over time. If you're wondering which podcast you want to skip, if you want to hear me not love the movies, four and six are going to be the two that I really don't love. Everyone else, every other movie, I'm going to have a lot that I loved about it. Four and six... I'm going to do my best, but might be a bit of a struggle. Overall, though, this movie is very charming. I think all the movies are very charming. That's number one. Uh, number two, this movie has an amazing cast. Every single one of these films, including this one, is bolstered by almost perfect casting, if not better than perfect casting. I think when you ask people, what is the most like, what is the most well-cast thing of all time? Harry Potter's got to be number one in the top three, even if you don't love the casting in Harry Potter. Like, there is no denying that this cast elevates every single movie. It is perfectly cast. I think for this film, I think it's a very safe adaptation of the first book. It follows the story really closely. Um, it doesn't have any, there's in terms of the, I'm going to do a sports metaphor here. I'm a sports person. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk ice hockey. <laughs> Rachel and I are both Canadian. Uh, the equivalent here is you have one hockey player who scores 30 goals a year, but they're all kind of dirty, gritty, front of the net rebound kind of goals. And you have another player that scores 30 goals a year, um, but they're all flashy, toe drag, spinning around, you know, <laughs> big deeks, that kind 
kind of thing. Um, this movie is the first one, right? It does the job really, really well, but it's doing it in a way that's not flashy. It's not technically crazy. It's not trying, like, you know, in a wizarding world, there could be unlimited amounts of spectacle and whimsy and craziness. And it's very, very toned in with that. Like, it kind of holds that in in order to tell the story. I think that this movie succeeds best when it is doing the British boarding school vibes, um, which again is not the wizardry part of this movie, right? I think all the magical aspects are honed in a little bit and kind of hemmed in so that the the standard bog storytelling of three 11 year olds going to a boarding school and all of the interactions that you'd have doing that can kind of flourish. Um, but overall, this movie is very enjoyable. It's a very faithful adaptation. I wish it took more risks. That's the one thing I feel every time I watched this movie as I was like, oh, you are in the wizarding world. And like, I think a different director just takes more risk. Like a Prisoner of Azkaban feels that way, right? I think that's a fairly mm -hmm. good adaptation of the source material, but in a way that just feels like a bigger risk. There's more going on. There's more, I don't know. I don't know how to explain what I'm trying to say. It's just a feeling. Um, but I mm -hmm. feel like if I have one overall criticism, it's that I wish it just kind of, had a little more verve and vivaciousness and flair. And I think the books are so whimsical sometimes um, in a way that this movie doesn't quite capture, but otherwise good movie. I had fun. We watched it together. I had a good time. I've seen it like 25 times and overall enjoyable movie, a little too safe for my liking, but Hey, you know what? It's for the kids. And as a seven year old, I fucking loved it. So. Yeah. I mean, I think charming is the word. I, uh... Undeniably charming. It. Every single one of these movies, regardless of it's, any other things I will say about them, they are all 10 of the 10 charming. Yeah, and it. I think what it captures so effectively, it, even when it came out, it already kind of felt nostalgic because it's set in the early 90s, right? So in this time that, at least for, for me, you may have been an, an embryo or a twinkle in the eye at this point in time. Um, but... <laughs> talking about i'm not that much younger than you it said 1992 i was technically born okay well or 1991 i don't know but um it just it it does a really good job of setting you in that time period but also it i think the first movie and sorry pippin has uh, opinions as well um it takes you back to kind of how fun and lighthearted the first few books were Obviously, as everyone gets older, the issues become a little more serious. The stakes get higher. But to kind of build off what you were saying, yeah, I agree that the movie itself feels safe. But I think that when you're trying to build a house or a castle, if you will, you have to start off with a strong foundation. And you get that by developing your characters introducing your main cast in a way that's consistent with what everyone who has read the books would expect. You, you don't break the mold too much because you want to introduce people to a world they know in a visual medium. So I agree safe, but I also think very effective because it doesn't try to drag you into a world a new world it just slowly guides you into the world you know 
which is why I think this first movie as a first movie is so effective. You know, obviously the casting is phenomenal. The trio has fantastic chemistry. Um, But it's not hard to see why this is a classic. It's not hard to see why every time you're sick or you're not feeling well or you just want to feel good, you put on this movie because it, it brings you back into that world. So yes, safe, but I think for the right reasons. Yeah, I'm not even look. If I, if you had handed me the Harry Potter book, like this is a, this is an unfair criticism in a sense because I would have done the same thing. Like if you had handed me the Harry Potter books and said this is possibly a bajillion dollar thing, don't fuck this up. I'm playing it safe. Like if you're Chris Columbus <laughs> directing this movie and you have option A, which is a safe film, but everyone's gonna like it. It's gonna do the job. It's gonna make a boatload of money. You're gonna get to make a bunch more films, and everyone will love you. Mm-hmm. Then or option B. It's like it's like investing your money, right? Potentially higher interest rates earned on option B, but much more risk that you mess it up and people are a little disenchanted and they don't come back for movie two and it's a mess and whatever. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that I would have done yeah. the safe option as well. I just as I'm reviewing these movies, now that I mm. know that they're successful in hindsight, I, I wish this one in hindsight was more. I just I, it's the Diagon Alley chapter that does it for me. Like, I remember reading uh. that as a kid and you read the Diagon Alley chapter and you're like, oh, my like this is it is a, it is you're right it is contemporary it is set in the night it is set in a recognizable place and time and you get to the shops and they've got doors and windows and signs like this is all these are all things that exist in the muggle world but i remember reading the diagon alley chapter and feeling like i was on a new planet like that's how i really felt about it and then you watch diagon alley in the movie and say like, oh it's an alley with shops but they're wizarding shops. And when you get into Ollivanders, it's pretty fucking cool. But otherwise, it's kind of just a contemporary. You go through the brick wall, but the street is kind of. And then it's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, it, you don't get the same elevation of like, oh, my, this is a whole other. I think that's what JK's writing achieves so well that maybe it's impossible to translate onto film. Is just this feeling, this, this simultaneous feeling of being so aware of the contemporary nature of what you're reading and so like comfortable with the material and yet feeling like you're on Mars. She, it's like JK Rowling is describing mm-hmm. earth, but making you feel like you're on Jupiter. And I don't know how you can translate that into film, but it's the Diagon mm-hmm. Alley sequence in the book and the movie mm-hmm. that most emblemizes. And that's not a word. I just made that up. Anyway, that most <laughs> um, showcases the general feeling I have with the film with regards mm. to its riskiness. Um, but other than that, though, let's get into our notes about this movie. Um, first, I'm just going to do a general disclaimer. Uh, we're firing a lot of teachers. I think we should just get to these as we get to them in the movie. Like, I think it's mm-hmm. more fun to do it that way. If we rattle them on the top, then all the ammo is gone. I think it's more fun <laughs> if we get to them. So for the audience, I'm going to do these in big chunks. This is a fairly faithful adaptation, so I'm not going to have to stop and be like, this didn't happen in the book, and this did. Like, most of the things that happen in the book happen in this movie, sometimes in a different way, but that's okay. Um, so we're going to do big chunks, and we're going to talk about them. Rachel, does that work for you? Works for me. Perfect. Let's get uh, the Dursleys all the way through. I'll also do a little recap as I go. We start with the Dursleys, and Harry gets left on the doorstep, and that's a whole thing. The Dursleys suck. The letters come They go to the zoo, then the letters come, and then they end up on the island, and then Hagrid shows up and tells Harry he's a wizard, and Dudley gets a pigtail. That is a whole sequence. We'll call that the Dursley sequence. Rachel, what what, what do you have to say about the Dursley sequence in this film? 
Okay, well, first of all, pre-Dursley, I love the opening scene of this film. Uh, I love Dumbledore showing up with his Deluminator. I love the shot of McGonagall uh, transforming from a cat to a human. I love that it's just so much magic in a perfectly mundane setting. It's just like, that's in a nutshell what this story is. So I love that scene. It, It sucks me in right off the bat every time. Uh, yeah, man, the Dursleys fucking suck. They do suck. And they really suck. It, it, it Again, gets perfect, worse. Perfect casting. Fiona Shaw eats it up as Petunia. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And and like it gets worse every time I watch it because when I'm a kid, I'm like, oh, those parents are mean. I know what mean parents are like. Like my parents made me eat my vegetables. But then I'm a I'm an adult and I'm like, oh, that's. They threatened, Legit, to, they threatened horrifying to star, abuse. They threatened to star Harry in the first five minutes. They keep uh, him in a cupboard. Like it's that's it's the legit least, horrifying. That's, a, that's, a, that's the least horrific thing. They, he like he cooks their meals. He cleans up yeah. after them. He's never get, had a new thing on his own. Get Dudley me, bullies give me my him. coffee, boy. Fucking sick yeah. Line they reading. barely call him by his name. Like everyone's like. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, I, I was a, I was a little bit they unfair. Suck, I was a little bit unfair to the first sequence. I kind of skipped that. I remember as a six year old being fucking blown away by the VFX shot when McGonagall <laughs> turns, like the shadow shot. And now that yeah. I've seen like the Avengers and whatever, like it's like, oh, okay, we've evolved a little bit from the VFX capabilities Wait. when Harry Potter yeah. was released, or the budgets have gotten bigger, one or the other. But hey, you know, uh, that shot when I was six years old, I was like, how did they make that? <laughs> Like I was, I couldn't believe it. Like a six-year-old me thought she really turned into a thought cat. Thought it was real. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like they stuck you right in. Um, my favorite part rewatching <laughs> this was like Dumbledore. We gotta talk about Dumbledore and his administration of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. But uh, he literally looks Harry Potter in the face. I've forgotten this. He looks Harry Potter in the face in this movie and goes, "Good luck." Harry Potter. And that line is written as, uh, just so you know, hey, audience, wink. If you've not read the books, like this is, are, the kid is Harry Potter. You don't have to wait long to find out who that is. Um, but the, the good luck line is someone who knows what the next like seven years of misery, like, or I guess by the time he's a Aladdin? baby, so like Dumbledore, it's like 11 plus, plus, I'm plus the rest of the times he's going to go back there. I'm like, motherfucker, you know this is going to be shit for him. Why are you wishing him good luck? Like, you're the one who's making him be here. Like, yeah, anyways. <laughs> so brutal. The, the, the line, good luck, Harry, to baby Harry as they leave him out in the cold was strange to me. I was like, just, thanks, Dumbledore. Just nutty. And, and like, the worst part is, like, you want to hate the Dursleys unreservedly, but then they still have funny lines. Like, you still catch yourself laughing at Vernon being like, Sunday is the best day of the week. Would you yeah. like to know why? But this is the no casting. Like, no casting choice was nothing but perfect. Like, every casting yeah. choice is perfect, and every actor is chewing up the scenery in every scene. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, <laughs> I, I would argue that in Harry Potter, you can't... What I've never heard as a criticism of Harry Potter is the dialogue is bad, and I don't mm. even think the writing is particularly profound or good. I think the actors just elevate it so much that you can't even tell which parts of the script are bad and which parts are good, and the writers can just do whatever they want because the whatever lines they feed these actors, they are going to excel with. And they will just make it work. And it's like, I've never heard one person ever go, yeah, Harry Potter, I loved everything, but the screenplay, the writing was awful. It's just never, because it doesn't matter, because the actors 
are just going to elevate it to the point where you can't even notice it as the audience. And it's down to even Dudley is killing it. He's terrible and I hate him. But the 37, there was 39 last year or whatever. Like, fuck it. He nails it. He's like eight. This is an eight year old (laughs) kid. And it's like, and this is like, you, hey, eight year old, you're going to play the fucking asshole kid. The worst. Right. And it's so easy to overact that. And he just hits it perfectly. Yeah. The soul cast, the Dursleys are, you hate them for sure, but they are well cast and their performances Mm. are incredible. Yeah. You love to hate them. Yeah, I love the letter sequence. The letter sequence makes me laugh every time for two reasons. One, the best seeker in a generation can't catch catch at least 150 letters pass by his forehead before he grabs one. So that's or or like he doesn't like shove one in his pants or like hide it under his sweater. Yeah, I have received a little bit of shit in my real life for my Harry's not a great wizard take at the end of this at the end of book one. But hey, like, I'm just let's look at let's roll the clip, man. Like this is a kid who's <laughs> we're ten minutes away from this kid being granted like executive privilege to be a seeker mm-hmm. who's gonna get illegal gifts sent to his table. And he's mm-hmm. not catching any of these letters. No. But then there's like hitting Dursley in the face and then Dudley saying that he's gone mad. I love everything about the letter sequence. Oh, it's oh it's phenomenal. I it's one of those, yeah, again, it's one of those things you don't question when you're a kid, because you're like, oh, there's so much chaos. Of course he wouldn't catch one. And then you're just staring at the hundreds of letters it's on the so ground, many. and you're like, what <laughs> like, are you doing? It's yeah. right there. It's right there. Please, please, please. Yeah, I noticed in the movie this watch just a lot of, like, Chekhov's, like, when Dursley says, if anything funny happens at the zoo, no food for a week. And you're like, something funny is going to happen to that zoo, right? Like so many, <laughs> like the Dursleys get all the Chekhov's, like shit's going to go down lines. And I, I appreciated that. I also just love that, like, they probably know that, like, making him upset is more likely to um, trigger a magical response. But yeah, I don't think they're they thinking do. rationally about it. I think, I think maybe Petunia might sometimes, but she's not the one doing the threatening. I think Mr. Dursley, I think old Vernon. Is not thinking rationally. I think yeah. a rational person after the third letter that gets a dr- <laughs> like, is like, oh, they're just going to fucking find it. Like, they're going to find a way to yeah. get one of these to Harry. Right? Like, yeah. there's nothing. Hilariously enough, it is after a million letters come mm. through his mailbox and hit him in the face that he decides, <laughs> yeah, going to an island will keep the wizard. Like, he knows that there's wizards and he knows that they're magical. And surely when the letters were magically, like, these were flying letters. These were, like, they weren't obeying the laws of physics. They were coming through the <laughs> mail hole and swerving around. Like, a real letter would just fall down the chimney and hit the bottom and pile up in the chimney. But they're flying out of the chimney. Like, this is not a, ma- this is not a person who's thinking rationally at all. Mm. So I'm not surprised that he doesn't know how to get Harry to stop being magical I, I i'm surprised he doesn't give up like i would just like you know how defeated you must feel i'm surprised he continues yeah. to maybe i'm not like there's a lot of people like that i work with one who's just like fucking in on all the conspiracy theories and it does not matter what you tell him like he's just so committed oh, yeah. to it and i maybe that's vernon maybe he's like he's so committed to harry not joining the wizarding world that he's just gonna believe after the million letters that it's still possible What's like the opposite of a conspiracy theorist? Like someone who is so dead set on everything being completely normal that they will refuse any evidence to the contrary. Yeah, this is a fun like side discussion. I think if I was to, <laughs> if I was to try and break this down in like a chemistry equation, 
there's some the, the equation goes like trust plus social acceptance equals like point of view i think at least for the couple people that i know that are super into all the conspiracy theories um they lack trust in institutions for whatever reason, I, I would say almost entirely misplaced, but someone has told them or something has told them they should not trust <laughs> some institutions, right? And so they mm -hmm. lack trust and they lack the social ability to change their opinion, right? Like if you are, um, mm -hmm. I'm not going to name a politician, but we can figure out the politician. If you are a supporter <laughs> of a certain politician who was once the president of the United States and you offer the opinion that you would vote for another person in that member's party, but not that one person, you get kicked out of the, like there's no social room to maneuver with your opinions. Mm -hmm. There's no social room to have a nuanced take. And so the social pressure, right? You don't wanna lose your friends. You don't wanna lose your family. You wanna be accepted in your social groups. The social pressure pushes down in one direction and it combines with like whatever level of trust that you have into informing your point of view. And I think the opposite of that would be, and it's entirely possible. Like, I, it's easy to dunk on the conspiracy theorists. There's the whole <laughs> other end of the spectrum where people just fucking believe anything any authoritative figure ever tells them about anything ever. And that's the opposite of what that is, right? So very high level of trust in institutions. If someone, if it's your boss, if it's like, if any person that has any semblance of power or authority over you says anything, mm -hmm. you will just believe them, right? Yeah. You will just trust in that. So I think that's the opposite. I think it comes down to trust. And then it's the same kind of social pressure and it's just mixing. That would be my chemistry equation for that is trust plus social pressure equals point of view. And I think Dursley has the social pressure. This is a big deal, at least in the book, in the movie, it's kind of left out, but the Dursleys have this social pressure. They want to be normal. They don't want to stick out. They just, so there's all that social pressure coming in. And then there's the lack of trust in the wizards. He doesn't trust the wizards. He's think, he thinks mm -hmm. they're going to kill him. He thinks they're weird. I think this is all the same thing. I think it's trust and social pressure equals point of view. And I think if you do the math on the Dursleys trust and their social pressure, and all that stuff. I think you're combining to the right thing. I'm just surprised he doesn't still, he still doesn't give up. Like at some point you still have to, regardless of the math, be like, fucking surely, like after they <laughs> hit all the letters a hundred times, surely they're going to find him. Like I can just give up now. Like there's nothing I can do. I don't like the wizards, but it doesn't matter because the wizards are going to fuck with me anyway. So might as well. Yeah. Point, like you already dislike Harry. At what point do you just say, fine, take him. I don't want to, I don't have to pay for right, it. Right, yeah. Take him. Just get him out of my house. Right. Yeah. I don't, a... I don't understand why Dursley doesn't give up. Um, but if you're, <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast and you thought, whoa, episode like 20, they got political in the movie podcast. We'll do anything. We're unpredictable. You can't, you can't, you can't pin us down. You think, you know, Brett and Rachel on a podcast. Fuck you. You don't know anything. We're, we're going to do whatever we want. <laughs> Just yeah. inadvertently yeah i feel like i was pretty no, neutrally non-political that's okay I mean, i'm here for it I'm, i it was a much more logical and science-based breakdown of vernon dursley than i thought we were going to get that's today. what i'm here for i'm here yeah that's a better way to put it if you're here for your science if you're like i wasn't expecting a science-based vernon dursley take well fuck you you're here you're here now you're in the shit with me and i'm gonna give you my chemistry equation on Vernon Dursley. Okay, let's move on. The Dursleys are shit. We're in the fucking cabin now. We're on the mountain. This is so funny. Like this, it's this. This is actually a good example of the whimsicalness of what I'm looking for. 
right? Mm -hmm. Like this is fucking hilarious. The establishing shot of the tiny cabin on the rock and there's just vast oceans. You don't yeah. know how they got there. There's no like, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> oh, it's almost unbelievable that they even got to this rock. And there's no, like does Vernon Dursley own this? Did they rent this? Like these are all things that are in the book. But this is like, it's there's such a whimsical nature to this establishing shot that this is the kind of thing I wanted from more of the movie. Because I laughed out loud this time watching this establishing shot of this hut in the middle of nowhere. Because it's so dreary, right? Like, and you you have to know that Dudley, like this absolutely spoiled brat on his summer vacation, he's like, why the fuck have we come to this literally like middle of nowhere shack on a rock kind of deal and it's so it's like so scary yeah it's, like it's scary it's spooky movie. yeah it is you're in like a, a like a horror genre for a couple of scenes yeah and it's not yeah. outfitted the lack of furniture everything about this is like fully whimsical to me like there's no furniture yeah. you have no idea how they're cooking. like vernon dursley later coming down with a gun like that is all stuff that just ele yeah. like feels elevated for comedic effect and feels like oh, I'm watching a funny yeah. movie about wizards, even though it is scary. Like I, I feel, I really feel it in this whole sequence. Um, yeah, and then Hagrid kicking down the door is hilarious. I love all of this. Yeah. And like, yeah, kicking down the door is hilarious. But that like initial knock, 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 and then the door falling down was scary, terrifying. Like, yeah. Well, when you were a child. Now, now I'm yeah, like, ah, Hagrid. but initially I was like, oh, what the fuck? Even though I knew it was gonna be Hagrid. So I think I, I love how they how they set up that scene and then Hagrid comes in and he's like, Oh hi, how's everyone doing? Yeah, I thought that, I thought it was I thought it was sufficiently emotional. The cake was again, the cake is different than the book. Like they elevated the cake for whimsical effect. Like it's much more mm -hmm. smushed up, it's all spelled wrong, like it's all like that's what I mean. Like that's just there's so much more whimsy to that. I have beef with that, though, because he spells it correctly in the book. That's what I'm saying, though. But I think the choice in the movie to spell incorrectly adds to the general feeling that I want from more of this movie, which is like this elevated, like hilarious. Ha ha. If you, do you remember being seven yeah. and you were ba you barely knew how to spell any words, but most <laughs> seven year olds knew how to spell happy. And you just felt like Sherlock being like, well, he spelled it wrong. He spelled that's an adult. That's an adult. That's an adult that spelled the word wrong. Because you were, you still thought all adults were perfect and that they all did everything mm. perfectly. And ah, yeah, I'm, I'm here for the misspelling. I think that was a way in for children to feel kind of smarter than Hagrid. And I think you are. Like this movie is about Hagrid being outsmarted by a bunch of eleven-year-olds, right? So I think it's a fair thing to bring the audience into that and let you have this moment. We're like, ah, ah, that's not right. That's not. He's not spelling <laughs> that right. Okay, I accept that, but I also. I will stand for Hagrid. He deserved better. He can't cast magic, but he's not stupid. He's not, he's, not, he's not stupid in the he's, spelling way. He's not clever, but he's, he's no. not stupid. No, his. I don't know what the opposite end of the scale of cleverness is, but it's like the blunt no. force instrument. Like, there's no sharpness yeah. there. There's no... no just a spatula there's no social grace <laughs> like it's just all right on the surface all yeah. right hagrid comes tells harry he's a wizard all that stuff the only note i have about this just because i don't want this podcast to be 900 hours is that mm -hmm. it was sufficiently emotional like the whole you're a wizard harry 
the Harry getting mad at them for saying it was a car crash. The line reading again, all these actors are just chewing up the scenery. Like the like, what is it? What does he say that it's a it's a scandal? It's a scandal, Rachel. It's a car crash killed Lily and James Potter. A scandal. It's a scandal. Yeah, and so like that was all great. This was sufficiently emotional to mm-hmm. understand that Harry would be really mad at these people and to understand the gravity of what they've kept for him. Yeah, and then obviously the iconic like ear wizard Harry. Um, you know that's the kind of line you wait like five years to see put into a movie and uh how many takes do you think he got because it's perfect it's perfect and it's like still memed now Mm. like so it's two decades on at least it's still absolutely perfect line reading absolutely perfect meme no one has gone to try and replicate that how many takes do you think it took for him to get it perfect i guess i'm gonna say three i think he was a Mm. quick I, i don't think they redid that many times i think he got it on take three I would say max five, just because it was in the middle of a bunch of other lines. I okay. like to imagine that Robbie Coltrane nails your wizard Harry every time. Yeah, maybe, maybe they maybe, maybe they was, give us maybe they gave us the worst take. And the other ones are too good. Like Hagrid wouldn't do it that good. No, it would break their hearts. We gotta go with the mediocre <laughs> one. All right, so let's move on from the island. Dudley gets a pigtail. Uh, we'll talk about how traumatic that is when we read book four, when Dudley has to deal with that trauma. But for now, it's funny. Uh, it will be true. It will be traumatic later, but it's just very funny. And I laughed and look, I know. And this is a, worse for me because my job in real life is to look after other people's children. And so laughing at children getting physically altered by magic is not good. But guess what? Again, fuck you. I'm going to do it again when Moody turns Draco into a ferret. Because I think McGonagall's too mad about that. Draco deserved that for sure. He deserved it. He deserved yeah, absolutely it. deserved that. And I understand that it's a sliding scale and it can get out of hand. But I think I think the 10 seconds in Goyle's pants was fully earned. So, you know, the pigtail is funny. It's not funny, but it's pretty funny. And I enjoy like, Every time you watch this movie, you, you laugh at it. And I don't want you watching yeah. this. I don't want you listening to this podcast going, how terrible. You do it, too. There's not one time you've watched Harry Potter and you're like, you know, I really love this movie, but I think they took the pigtail thing too far. It's funny. Mm-mm. No, it's funny. It's funny every time. Okay, pirate. As long as we're in agreement here, I can I can delete the emails. If you're going to yell at me here, then that's not ideal. All right. We get to we get to Diagon Alley. And it's sufficiently cool, I think. Like there's, there is a lot. I, again, I wish this was heightened a little bit. But in terms of, in terms of the sequencing, like going into the pub starts out super normal. And now having been and spent quite a bit of time in England, like the England pub culture, like it really does. Like they do a really good job of replicating that for this scene. We meet Quirrell without the turban, which again, big Chekhov's. Like it's so obvious that you can't believe you missed it when you were six or seven. You're like, what? crazy um but yeah meeting coral without the turban uh, going through the brick wall all this stuff is great i had a good time yeah i i i will just say the brick scene to enter diagon alley is and this is what i wrote in my notes is iconic and i will not be hearing any arguments it's one of the first i think like legit cgi shots that they commit commit to in the movie I'd agree i think a that. lot of, of of the other stuff i think can be done practically so like they can put the motorcycle on on wires and have that float down um i think this is the first one they really commit to and with 2001 like you you don't have that good an eye for seeing which things are cgi and and what are not and that was incredible to me so i loved that shot 
Uh, yeah, and then everything in Diagon Alley is pretty cool. The thing I want to talk most about is Ollivander's uh, and Gringotts is pretty cool. But you have a lot of notes about clothes and stuff. So why don't you go off about the things you loved about Diagon Alley? Because I think you have more insightful notes than I do. Yeah, okay. So I, I think Diagon Alley is just a whole, as a whole setting, I think has a lot of important stuff for Harry. Um, but I realized this while I was like skipping through the movie, trying to remember what I wanted to take notes on. And this makes me sad every time I remember it. I think getting sized for robes at Madame Malkin's would be the first time Harry has ever gotten clothes that were made for him. Not even made for him, that were purchased for him. Or, or that fit him. That fit him, yeah, because every other single thing he had was hand-me-downs. He was always in these large clothes. So he goes into Diagon Alley, and not only is it a new world, it's like a new world that is for him. And, you know, he gets Hedwig. Hagrid buys him Hedwig, so now he has two friends. Hagrid uh, and Hedwig, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the Gringotts scene is is fabulous. I think we talked about it a lot when we uh, when we were talking about the book. I think the... What do I like most about Gringotts? I think it's probably the cart system. Yeah, that's pretty cool. For me, it's the if I'm remembering for those listening, I might put this as a disclaimer. Rachel and I, we won't we will not make this mistake for the next movie. We watched this like three weeks ago, maybe, and then kind of <laughs> scrambled it. We made the mistake. Normally you want to watch it and then podcast about it, but we're a little like, we've passed the movie a little bit, but that's okay. We're doing our best. But I think my favorite part of Green Gods is like the back shot when the camera tracks back into his money. Like, I think the camera starts at the door and then it backs over the giant pile of money. And you have no idea how much money this is, but you can tell this is a lot. And it's just so many questions about how the Potters even had that much money. But hey, you know what? Who cares? Harry's got it. Um, and it's kind of a it's a fun narrative tool, right? Like him having mm -hmm. a lot of money does solve a lot of problems from the story for the storytelling and kind of elevates Ron Ron's character a little bit. But I think that, um, yeah, the pullback shot over top of the pile of money is my favorite Gringotts part. Yeah, and it really, like, it gives you an idea of, like, it's kind of like a, it's an obvious metaphor, but, like, how much is below the surface on Gringotts? Yeah. It's kind of just, like, if you look a little further in your regular world, maybe there's a wizarding world. Maybe there's a whole ass dragon guarding a bank underneath a main city in London. You don't know. Maybe you're secretly so rich. <laughs> but your parents failed to invest any of the money in Nimbus. So your money has just been sitting stagnant for 11 years. I forgot years. we had a whole stock exchange. <laughs> Fuck yeah. We did, didn't we? You want to invest in flu? Flu pow. And Nimbus. Yeah, I, and I think Ollivander's is a safe investment because you just, you need yeah. that. You have 100% 100, 100 market share. You want you want, yeah. you want want a 5% stake in Ollivander's. Yeah, so I'm just getting that like Dumbledore or Hagrid or whatever was not a very good caretaker of Harry's estate because like that gold has just been sitting there doing nothing. Yeah, is it even earning? Is the gold, is the gold is it, are the galleons even working for you in this world? <laughs> it's working that's my favorite phrase make your money work for you it's like i don't have any fucking money okay <laughs> like, I, need money to, I need to pay my bills like how, how much money like, you want me to have so much money that my money also works i don't like working <laughs> i just tried to give pip a treat so he would stop barking he just bit my finger so 
Yeah, Pip Pip doesn't want your money to work for itself either. No, Pip's a goddamn Slytherin. Yeah. Anytime someone's like, put your money to work. How much money do you think I have that I can have my money work for me? <laughs> what? Yeah. Anyways, no. uh, Harry's money <laughs> should be worth. You can put it in interest. You can put it in. Oh, these are Canadian terms, but like whatever the mm-hmm. wizarding TFSA is. <laughs> make the 401k? minimum. 401k Roth IRA. These are American terms. I don't know what any of that is. Yeah, in in New Zealand, they call it a kiwi saver, which is the best <laughs> kiwi saver. Yeah, put it in your kiwi saver if you're in New Zealand. That's way better than what we have. Um. I'm trying to think if there's anything else about Diagon Alley that I want to talk about. I, oh, yeah, Ollivander's. I think Ollivander's yeah. is truly awesome. I think as a as an adaptive as an adaptive part of the scene, I think Ollivander's does what I want it to do. It is hilarious. It is crazy. Ollivander's really weird. The I think the effect of Harry finding the right wand is a bit weird. And I think the mm-hmm. logic of the wands, like I'm not even now, like I, I feel like having read the books a bazillion times, I have a pretty good understanding of like what wand lore is, but what JK does is she like, she's so masterful at making shit up later and making it seem like it was the plan the whole time that when Harry, I remember us pointing this out when I watched the movie, I remember I pointed this out to you is when Harry mm-hmm. takes the first one and like blows a bunch of shit up, like, like, and then, and then all of them are just like, no, 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 not that one. I'm like, what do you mean? That was some sick magic. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't think the scene does quite enough to like distinguish what is good magic versus what is not. Cause for the wand that actually does a ton of magic, you're like, nope. But for the wand that just like happened to be the twin of someone else's and then the glowing lights start and you're kind of wondering like, what is it about this? Like, how is this working? But otherwise I think Ollivander is sufficiently cool for what I wanted. Yeah. I thought it was like kind of happy-go-lucky, like almost funny when he would like mess up magic. But then it got real creepy real fast. Yeah, real serious. The very big like, tone change in all of Andrews. Very curious. And you're like, what the fuck is curious? I need to know right now. Yeah, and yeah. Then- you're like, what the fuck is curious and why is this man allowed around children? Like, why is he... <laughs> And like, then luckily he tells you immediately. Why we do this curious. at work all the time. Like we have a lot of people that work at work. Some of the people cooking the food, some of the people working in maintenance. They're not the most like kid friendly people all the time. They're not like horrible, but they're just, it's not their jam. Right. <laughs> so we always make sure that like when there's parents around or we're talking, we have the, they have the more socially capable people like talking to the parents and stuff. Ollivander needs that. I think he needs to make the wands and he needs to hire a clerk he's a frontman he's a frontman yeah like a hostess at a restaurant right you know what i mean like someone who's taking you to the table who's showing you the wands who's taking your order and ollivander can come in at the end for the sale exactly yeah it does seem a little weird that he's just out and about i guess that's the wizarding world though all these people are weird and should be fired and none of them should be in charge of children so maybe ollivander's not Mm -hmm. actually that different it's just it's consistent world building (laughs) every adult right although to be fair like how how far away is that from like the 1920 i guess like parenting and like taking care of kids like there's a huge generational gap between our generation and the current one like when i was a kid my mom was like there's a tree go climb it all day and if you fall and break your leg that's life honey like you fell and everyone breaks a bone you know like whatever like yeah, now, you know the, now you know I'm looking after kids as a job and we have to put signs on all the trees being like, don't climb these. It's dangerous. You could fall and hurt yourself. Like her, mm-hmm. falling and hurting yourself when I was a kid was the point. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like now it's, it's cool. not allowed. Whereas like, but this has happened before. Like I was much more sheltered because when my mom was a kid, 
like there was no there was no communication and it's like she was like yeah i would get home from school at two o'clock and i would just mm-hmm. go play in the forest till nine o'clock no mm-hmm. and you would just go do that unsupervised didn't have to tell anyone like it wasn't weird that the kids and now if you told me now like yeah all of the local children are just off playing in the forest and how old are they like eight and you're like what why are they out play you know so i even now i would find that strange so it's it's not i'm not holding it against any one generation but in this in harry potter like it does kind of seem like they're a little bit loosey-goosey with how best to look after the children a little bit but in a way that makes like when you're watching it as a kid you're like i would appreciate this level of freedom so i'm not going to complain about it (laughs) Of course, absolutely. Yes, definitely. Um, anything else with Diagon Alley you wanted to mention? I uh, just, I love Hedwig. I think I already said that, but I want to say it again. Yeah, we're both animal people, but you're the animal ear of the people. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hedwig's cool. We love Hedwig. Let's move on. We're on, we get actually, we're not on the Hogwarts Express yet because I would be a terrible person if I skipped meeting the Weasleys. Mm-hmm. Meeting the Weasleys is fucking awesome. I still hold to my take that Molly talking about school in this way is just for the audience. And that like mm-hmm. all these people who go on, spend their time on Reddit trying to defend this, just it's a, just a storytelling device. It's fine. There's no way Molly would be telling all of her children like this way to the platform. This one is nine and three quarters. Like where are they all like almost all of these kids already know. And the other ones like I can she's bringing Ginny before she goes to school. Like every person here has already been to this train platform before. They all know what's going on. There's no way Molly's doing this. Right. However, very helpful for Harry, who doesn't know where to go, and us, the audience, who also has no idea what's happening. Um, so that stays in the movie from the book. Otherwise, this is wonderful. Like Molly Weasley, wonderful. Ginny, adorable as hell. Getting that crush on Harry right away, yeah, which right is away. awesome. Uh, Ron is super cool. The twins, hilarious. The first Fred and George instant of like, mm-hmm. just kidding. I'm George. No, I'm Fred. No, I'm actually George. This is so funny. And then Molly, yeah. Honestly, woman, you call yourself our mother. Yeah. Can we talk <laughs> for a second? Really I just want to, for all the moms out there, what the fuck is Arthur Weasley doing? <laughs> why, like, why is Molly responsible for all the kids? What's going on at the ministry right now? Why can I, like, this is. You gotta take that day off work, man. Your kids are leaving for like four months. Yeah. Where is Arthur? Why is he not here helping? With his family. This is a large family of people that all needs to get off to school. <laughs> Fucking Molly has to do all the work. Arthur, come on. It doesn't, it, it doesn't add up. I, I, I know what Arthur's work ethic is like. It's not great. <laughs> so I, he, can, not- <laughs> he can show up. This is a muggle expert who doesn't know what electricity is. Okay. Like we need to mm-hmm. work on this. Like he needs to show up to the train station. Yeah. I think he does in later movies and books. It's fine. But just right now, I just wanted to, for all the moms out there, I see you. And this is unfair to Molly. And if you watched the movie and saw it, I saw it this time as well. Yeah. I can 1000% say I never thought of that, but that's really funny. I didn't either until this time watching through. I was like, you know what? Where the fuck is Arthur? <laughs> they didn't have the, but the real reason is they didn't have the budget to cast him. But hey. Yeah, he I don't just, want to break. He, he wasn't cast yet, so he can't be there. He wasn't cast yet, so he can't be there. Um, once we're on the Hogwarts Express, everything with Ron is amazing. Uh, now I finally get to share my take that Rupert Grint is easily the best actor of these three kids. Like they're all, they're all three great. They're all perfectly cast. Like I have nothing 
against the performances of Emma Watson or Daniel Radcliffe. But I think Rupert Grint was the hardest one, the hardest character to achieve and get right. And he gets it absolutely perfect from day one. I think I think Emma Watson and Daniel Radcliffe have a little bit 11 year old, like learning how to act in this movie. I don't think I don't think Rupert Grint is seamless. Like this seems like a kid who's been acting forever who understands the assignment perfectly and just everything about like him pulling out the sandwich, him, like the way, even the way he's dressed and the way he like carries his body is perfect. I would say the same with Neville. Um, it's Matthew Lewis who plays Neville. That actor just really understands the character. Well, and really like, I think portrays it perfectly. Um, but this Harry Ron sequence where you get a little bit of everything, you get this budding friendship, you get the, Oh, you're Harry Potter. Like, this is the first time you get the sense of like, oh shit, he's really famous. And it's a great like three-step reveal. Like in this scene, Ron sees that he's really famous and you get the one person. But then later when they're at the sorting hat, all the kids look at him and Malfoy's like, so it's true. Harry Potter's here. And everyone's like, oh, what the hell, right? So it's it's a great build-up moment for that later. I just think this scene with Ron is great. Yeah, I think so too. Um Rupert Grint just absolutely just like sinks into the role, especially when he's younger. Cause I think he, uh, how do I phrase this? He, he ages up the most, like he looks the most his age as the movies progress. Like when he's 18 pretending to be a 15 year old, you can see it. Right. I agree. So, so and I think that's partially cause he got super tall. So you can't can't really help that. That's just genetics. But when he's like 12 or 11 or 12 playing an 11 year old and he gets to sink into that, he just becomes Ron. It's just kind of this like annoyed, kind of exasperated youngest son who just wants to like have his own space, but then also make his own friends. It's yeah, no, he does a fantastic job. He makes, it, love... he makes it look really effortless. Like every sequence with Ron, you don't even think that there's an actor acting in that role. You kind of just think Rupert Grant showed up and was Ron. and just yeah. like, It almost feels like he's playing himself. I feel this about Alec, Alan Rickman as Snape. You almost get the sense that like they're just playing themselves. Like they're not they're not even acting like this is it, it's how yeah. it feels. It's obviously not true, but it just feels so effortless from the beginning. Whereas I don't think. I think the best acting any of the three do is is Emma Watson in the Deathly Hallows part one and two. If I had to think mm. what is the peak moment of their acting, but I think the most mm. consistently good actor of the bunch is Rupert Grant, who I think never misses a line or a beat or a moment and ne it never feels forced. It feels supernatural for him to be Ron. And yeah, you get everything in his performance. Like you just understand that he's the youngest kid, that he doesn't have a lot of food, that his family's poor. Like just from the way he looks and like, says his lines and the way he's dressed and like it's all coming together with ron i think yeah i, I so i wrote this in my notes so i, I do want to say it but i love that like the dynamic between harry and ron is kind of set up immediately that harry has wealth and money and ron has wealth and knowledge and neither of them know what the fuck to do with it yeah that's right <laughs> and and then with all that information they're like you know what we're 11 yeah. let's just buy all the candy I'm like sure yeah, yeah that's what i would do, do how yeah. do you think it feels to be this is not as egregious as in the books but like, how do you think it feels to be the kids in the next cart who got their shit taken by Harry <laughs> <laughs> right, like, not only is he famous he bought the whole candy cart where are my chocolate frogs i like to imagine that the cart kind of like auto 
refills itself. Like by magic. Magic, please pull in. She's like, anything for the trolley, dude. The catering container just magically adds to the cart. Yeah, like they have like a secret storeroom in the back and they just like somehow like mini apparate the rest of the inventory back that's a headcanon that's probably not how it works i don't but think anyone's figured out how this works i don't think it matters the, i don't think the train trolley lady would do that to anyone unless you've seen the cursed child i was gonna say the, the trolley lady in the cursed child <laughs> would absolutely do that would absolutely this trolley lady does seem like they wouldn't do that no <laughs> i feel like this i think harry potter buying the snacks on the train trolley was like the first cultural um it made it culturally acceptable to do what we do now where it's like limit of three per person limit yeah. of five this item there needs to be enough for everybody like yeah like at costco it's like limit of two per membership yeah the hot dogs right, <laughs> you I can th- only get two hot dogs per visit yeah <laughs> I, I think that that was harry potter's kind of kind of siphoned <laughs> in this this culture of like limiting based on like yeah i know you can buy everything but, but please don't please don't because <laughs> the other kids like they're in hufflepuff and that sucks so like we gotta they need the chocolate frogs to feel good and like uh like we can't you can't be buying them all you can't be famous and the best seeker ever and in gryffindor and have all the money and take and all the chocolate enough. frogs from the hufflepuffs we can't allow it that's all they have. The Hufflepuffs are Up until Cedric shows up in three movies. This is all they got. And then and they Tom fucking Cedric kill him, like, man. Like, give them the, they- give them the chocolate anything. frogs. <laughs> this is my favorite Harry Potter take I've ever come up with, is that Harry's not allowed to buy the chocolate frogs so that the Hufflepuffs can have some and feel good about themselves. Sorry, if you're a Hufflepuff, I do love you. But mm. the movies and the books certainly don't, so that's not... JK, JK does not love you, and that's not my fault. No, my the rest of my entire family is Hufflepuffs. And, and, they're, and they're, that follows that you, you hate your family. Oh, yeah, no, we don't talk anymore. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's move on. We get to Hogwarts. Um, I love the cinematography for this. There's a boat, and the boats and the lights and the approaching of the castle, I think, is really, really immersive and really cool and really just, like, you feel... I felt this with the book in Diagon Alley, but I think this is the movie's version of really feeling like this is entering the, like this, this is the thing that does not happen in the muggle world. Like now we are entering the wizarding world and this is where shit's about to get real crazy with magic. And I think that that opening scene to the castle does a good job with that. Yeah. I think this was the, this was the moment of movie magic for me. Like, yeah, I think I, so I too. That I enjoyed in the lead up to getting to Hogwarts, but that shot of them in the boats with Hagrid in, a, in another boat because he's giant, so we can't share. Uh, that slow pan from the boats up to the castle with the swell of the music. Yeah, like that's it for me. Like I'm invested. I'm at Hogwarts. I will do all seven years there. I like I'm in the world. <laughs> right. If I see like if I sit down and I'm flicking through the this is not how I watch TV anymore, but like this is just an example. If I'm just flicking through and I happen to see that scene, I'm sitting down and watching the rest of the movie. Any the uh, any other scene pops up, I'm probably just like skipping out or skipping through. Like I but if I if you catch me at the beginning of the entrance to Hogwarts, 
I'm just going to watch the rest of the movie. Absolutely. I mean, like, that's the shot. Like, that's the one they used in all the trailers. It's the one. It's. Yeah, it's incredible. And I whoever they hired to actually design the Hogwarts castle. Like, I hope they're still getting paid because. What what a, a vision you would have to have to think like, what does a regular British or Scottish castle look like? And then how do I fuck with it to make it look magical? But also and, like a normal castle. This is the this is yeah. the this is the dance that they're doing all the time. Is like it's meant to feel yeah. contemporary with magic. Like it's meant to feel like this world is like adjacent to your own. Like that this yeah. is something that you could accidentally like that genuinely exists that you could accidentally fall mm-hmm. into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I I hope they're still getting paid because absolutely incredible work. They use a lot of that similar architecture architecture uh, for Hogwarts Legacy. Um, they use it in all of the movies. So I think that just goes to show like how they did their work right from the jump. It wasn't something that they had to change down the line. They had that blueprint and they kept it. Um, if you are the person that designed Hogwarts if, for movie number one, and you are listening to this podcast, um, just know that I agree with Rachel and that regardless of what I say about any of these movies, um, your work will always be a highlight because this scene is awesome. And I think you're right. I don't think they changed. They changed the layout of Hogwarts quite a bit, but I don't think they changed like the actual structure Castle. of the building. I think they keep that yeah. establishing shot for the rest of the mm-hmm. for the rest of the whole shindig. Yeah, like, yeah. but like the rest of it, the like Hagrid's hut moves to like four different oh, locations. The yeah, the grounds oh. change a lot, but. Which is so crazy to me. Whatever. We'll talk about that when it happens in movie three. Or, yeah. I liked this movie, so let's just go on with it. Um, We like this one. Um, In Hogwarts, immediately, like, poor Neville, but immediately giving us, like, Neville's character a good through line. Um, This movie does, uh, you know, uh, a good job. I would say, like, a bog standard, like, competently made movie job. But at the setups and payoffs, like you have them in, you have the bigger setups and payoffs, but they do a good job with the smaller ones, like getting to see Dumbledore in the chocolate frog before you meet him, just as a little bit of a prepper, uh, uh, getting to see Neville chasing around the frog as like, that's very helpful. It's like, we get to meet Hermione and we understand that Neville's looking for this thing. So he's a bit of a klutz. And then the moment when he like interrupts McGonagall to find the frog. It's like a really good payoff to that moment. And it's like, there's a bunch of, like, I, not over the top amazing, but just really competently done setups and payoffs to give us more information about the story. Um, the sorting hat bit, I think, is super cool. Like the preamble, there's nothing fancy going on. Uh, Maggie Smith, killing it is McGonagall. Uh, Draco, mm-hmm. definitely a dick. The way he introduces, this is crab, and this is Goyle. And I'm like, and this is my fist in your face. You suck. Yep. And they suck. <laughs> Fuck off, Malfoy. Fuck Every off, time. Malfoy. That's a good take. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a take that the folks will appreciate. If they didn't yeah. like the Hufflepuff take from earlier, they will enjoy <laughs> that take. We can get behind. Yeah, I think the sorting it really brings to life. Like in the book, especially if you're reading this book as a kid. If you're reading it as an adult, I pick it up every time. But um, as a kid, the movie does a bit of a better job of showcasing that. For some people, it takes a little while to sort them into a house. Like the hat gets a little confused. Uh, for some people, like Malfoy, it barely touches their head, right? So it's like the hat just knows he sucks, right? And for some people, like Harry, 
um, the person gets to say kind of if they have a really strong opinion like Harry is saying it all but I'm assuming Ron is thinking and said like please Gryffindor please Gryffindor please I don't I, I'm the youngest kid I don't want to get shit on by my family please don't put me in Slytherin right like, I'm assuming that a lot of the kids have this going on in their head Mm -hmm. um as an adult it does leave me with some questions because harry potter is like a world that's trying to exist outside of what needs to happen right some fantasy mm -hmm. worlds just exist insofar as they need to to tell the story cars is a great example they don't go through the, how do cars make other cars like how are cars building buildings the humans you know what i mean like what are what's going on you know cars does not go into detail about like the world other than what you need to make to tell the story. Harry Potter tries to do a little more world building than that. So I have a couple of questions. One, how does the sorting hat take into account like all these preferences and innate abilities and like legacy stuff and all of this, like, cause the sorting hat's kind of projecting ahead because Hermione definitely presents as a Ravenclaw early on and kind of mm -hmm. finds her Gryffindorness later, right? I would say in like book five is when she really finds that Gryffindor energy. Right, but how does like does each house have to have a equal split? Like, what happens if there's ten Ravenclaws, ten Hufflepuffs, twenty Slytherins, and five Gryffindors? Does the hat always sort as it sees fit? Does it have to mathematically? Because when you look at the benches, it always seems in the Harry Potter verse that the houses have an equal amount of people because the point the point system doesn't make sense anyway. So I don't even know why I'm. But it's like then if if each house had different amounts of people then they'd have, you have to change the points awarded based on, you know what I mean? Like, I just wonder, yeah. like, it doesn't quite answer the question about how this works, which is fine. I don't need it to, but it did as an adult now watching this movie does kind of stick out to me because the movie is telling me that the sorting hat takes all these things into account. But the movie also presents me with a world in which every house is like the same number of kids, give or take. And I'm not exactly sure how both of those can be true. Unless people are genuinely split into these four things perfectly evenly, but I don't know if I believe that that's the thing. Yeah, it's a lot harder than I thought I was going to have to think about the uh, the equity of sorting today. Uh, <laughs> okay, I'm just I'm just here for I'm just doing my own thing. Yeah, I think. Hmm. Maybe I'm the only person in the I, world that had this question watching this movie. I no, didn't read I, the book, but watching the movie, just the way the establishing shot shows me all the kids, and the movie wants me to know that the Sorting Hat takes all of these things into account. And I just, yeah, I just want to know what, what the gap is between taking all those things into account and the equity of sorting. Like, which is the most important? What kind of rule system is the Sorting Hat following? I think, it, yeah, I think they do genuinely generally rather want you to understand that there tend to be an even amount of kids sorted into each house each year um and i think that is at the sorting hat's discretion i'm not sure if there's some sort of um what sort i want it's not omnipotence omniscience like so he kind of knows once the kids get in the room right. uh what he's gonna do I like to think that the only time that the Sorting Hat really overrules himself is when the kids are like Harry. They're like, not Slytherin, not Slytherin. Right. He's like, ah, eh, fuck it. So maybe maybe uh, Harry's year had one extra Gryffindor and one less Slytherin. Well, they did seem like they had a lot of Slytherins. Right. Like, 
Like, what is the story? Like, sorry, Sally. I know you'd have a great time in Ravenclaw, and that's where all your friends are, and that that's where you should be. But there's only two Death Eater kids coming through Hogwarts this year, so you've got to go to Slytherin, Omi. Like, sorry. this is this is the kind of thing that I'm wondering. And maybe, maybe both can be true, and I'm just... I just... I asked the question watching the scene. I mean, it's a good question, because the the house points are awarded not like on a regular basis they're awarded on occurrence so if you have more kids in one house you're more likely to get more points yep this oh is... that fucks with the whole economy of house points that's what i'm saying and that's it was already fucked. And, and before anyone sends me an email <laughs> that says but they also have a greater chance of losing points that's not how competitions work people earn points at a far greater rate than they get points taken away from them or else the scores would be zero or negative but all the houses end the year with hundreds and hundreds of points mm -hmm. so I, that's provable evidence I, I do this for a job i literally run a point system for kids <laughs> as a job and i've tried all this math and stuff and if, they, if there's not an equal amount of people that fucks with the whole economy and maybe that's why i'm asking the question which mm. i think is the magic of harry potter is like as my life has changed and as i've acquired a job in which i have to run a system like this i now look back on this movie and ask the question like oh the movie is presenting me with all this information, but I don't know what I'm meant to make of it exactly. <laughs> Anyways, we can move on from the sorting hat. That's just a personal thing. Um, everyone gets sorted. People are stoked to have Harry in their house. What do you make of this pissed me off really mm -hmm. bad this time? I'd never noticed it before. I brought it up when we were watching. What do you make of McGonagall not doing the names in alphabetical order? The first person she calls is Hermione. Why? In what world, like, is she the, like, the top, like, what is happening? Why are we still, like, I can't think of any organizational system that would start with Hermione Granger. Unless it's, like, discriminatory. Like, we're starting with the Muggleborns first. And then we'll get to the real wizards. Like, what are we doing here? Uh, no, I think that's just a movie choice. I think it's, um, we need someone who you'll want to pay attention to right away. So we start with Hermione. Uh, and then I think Harry has a question about how it works. So it goes to Susan Bones so that Ron can talk to Harry over that sorting uh, so he can learn something and you don't miss something that's important to you. And then it cuts to Malfoy. So what you're saying is that when they were making this movie, they were like, this would be very helpful for telling the story. It, it'd be very helpful for telling this story. No, no, I'm not even being like you're. You're getting ahead. I, you're. I'm about to accuse you of something far more kind than you're accusing yourself. I was gonna say what you, what you're saying is that when they were making this movie, they were like, "Look, for the kids, they need to understand how this works. So we'll make the order not make sense, and the adults who have Excel spreadsheets who would never order things in this way." will be a little grumpy, but that's a worthy sacrifice to tell the story. Yeah, essentially, yeah. <laughs> so it was economical to piss adult Brad off to give child Brad a chance to understand how the sorting hat worked more ex expeditiously. Precisely. So you don't have to have the exposition before the sorting So many starts. fucking big words from us in a row. Oh, this <laughs> podcast is so... It's highbrow. This is a highbrow so podcast. We're so educated. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> I wonder, I really do, if you're listening to this podcast, I am so sorry that they allowed us to buy microphones and talk about this shit because there are podcasts about this movie that are like 20 minutes and talk about the movie and don't tangent about the Excel spreadsheet priority order list of in which order the names were read But out. I mean, 
again, if you've listened to all the book episodes, that's not why you're here. Again, so fuck, I'm a little again, less fuck tired. you. This is our podcast, <laughs> and we're doing our own thing. Okay, what what is next here? I I've missed. A, I've definitely missed a sequence here. Um, yeah, okay. I, put, I put sorting is fun, but the order is whack in all capital letters. Um, oh, the next step is the classes. Uh, and I enjoyed how different these classes were. Uh, this was very good storytelling here. Like the McGonagall thing is fucking hilarious. Like the her, yeah. like, whoa, that was really good, Professor. It's like, maybe I should turn you into a stopwatch and you'd be on time. <laughs> I feel a little bad for the kids because if I was in a school, if I got there, it's day one and the staircases move randomly and there's no way to tell what's going on. I feel bad. Like this is a little unfair. However, everyone else made it on time. Everyone I mean, else was also dealing with those moving staircases. I mean, she didn't take away any house points, so I would say that's very <laughs> forgiving. They are in her house, and like, no teacher's going to start themselves in a negative. But I just, if she were going to be like a real hard ass about it, she probably would have taken away house points, but it's their first See, day. See, but she needs to be better well, at covering her trail. She sh What she should have done is taken away 20 house points here, 10 each for being late. And then later when she gives illegal gifts to the students to make them good at Quidditch, she can be like, hey, I'm playing fair. I'm using the advantages. I'm calling the shots as I see them. I see that I've got an all-time seeker. I'm getting him a broom. But they that, that same seeker was also late in the first day, remember? Minus 10? Minus 10, I'm allowed to... I think she needs or, to cover her tracks better. Or you can just say that the most effective social capital for children is shame. So she embarrasses them and they won't be late again. <laughs> is that a real thing? Is that... Should I, should I be shame? Should I be making the kids that I, I, feel shame I more not, often? I would not include that in, in your work. That is... <laughs> okay. So this is not advice. This is not advice. I try my best not to make the kids I work with feel shame. But if you're saying if you're saying it would make it more effective, I do got a lot of things I need kids to do, and they are bad at listening and doing them. Well, I mean, think of like the things that if you don't clean, if you don't shoot the arrow properly, mommy won't love you anymore. Oh my god! They'll fucking get that bullseye every time. Every time. Every time. I'll think about it. I'll think about how I, I think about how I approach my work and how I can better. Please do not start shaming your children because I made an offhand joke. <laughs> hey Timmy, hey Timmy, I'm not normally an asshole, but my my super smart friend, she's a lawyer. You know how smart people have to be to be lawyers. She told me that this would work, so you better tie those shoes on correctly, or you're never gonna get to go home again. Oh, that's just threatening. That's different. Oh no. Oh, we have gone off the deep end. This is your fault. We're, we're not even in the second There's a we're bunch of there's the a bunch class. of kids in Vancouver who are going to be terrified that they're never going home <laughs> and it's all because of you. Okay. Oh no. Let's move on. Um the classes are super cool, the teachers are super yeah. cool. I think Snape's bit is awesome. It's not quite yeah. as in the book it reads a little more like poetry to me like the it flows very elegantly the subtle signs and brewing death and bottling dreams or whatever it is he says um it's not quite as elegant but i think the line delivery makes a lot of sense for the character alan rickman's trying to play and i think maybe i just i think maybe that it's just written the way it's written in the book you don't know snape well enough to because it's the first thing he says like you don't know him well enough to assign like a pattern of speech or whatever mm -hmm. so you kind of just it takes a while to get to know him whereas in the movie he just kicks off with it and so yeah, yeah. but I, I love these classes 
and Alan Rickman plays him with like a certain amount of flair that I yeah. don't think book Snape has. No. Like movie Snape is a little dramatic. He's got some pizzazz. He's a, he's a bit of a drama queen. Like I can teach you how to bottle fame, brew glory, and even put a stopper in death. And you're like, okay, go off queen. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like work. It's the first day of classes. You're right. You're right. <laughs> but um, yeah, what do you but think I, he's saying to the seventh years? If this is the intro he gives to the first years, oh my god. Yeah, it's probably something just like, all right, bitches. Like we've been at this for six <laughs> years. Like, get your cauldrons. Fair I'm enough. Done. Okay, so he's not doing. The, he doesn't have a a sequentially beautiful opening to every class every year. This is like he does it once, and that's fine. And then, yeah, respect him. I don't know. What animal would Snape, Snape turn you into if Moody turns you into a ferret? Oh, this is interesting. To be fair, to be fair, I kind of, and I don't know why I thought this, because you're probably right that it was intentionally a ferret. I kind of thought it worked like being an animagus, where you didn't get to choose the animal. Mm. Right? Like, Malfoy was a ferret, because that's the, that's, if Malfoy was an animal, he might be a ferret. Like, I kind of assumed... That it was the same thing. Like if I, if you cast the spell on the person, they're just going to turn into a specific animal, but you don't get to choose it. Now, whether the animal's the same <laughs> as the animagus or what your Patronus yeah. is or whatever, but every other animal thing, they don't get to choose. It just gets assigned to you. Like your okay. Patronus gets assigned to you. Like you don't get to choose it. Same with uh, becoming an animagus. Like Peter Pettigrew okay. would not have chosen to be a rat. That's just. I mean, maybe. <laughs> Maybe maybe he likes him. He's, he's like, yeah, yeah, being a rat. That's what I want. When my friend's a fucking wolf, a uh, dog, <laughs> and a stag, like three cool animals, I want to be a rat. Imagine your three friends got to think of a super cool secret nickname for you, and they chose Wormtail. That's rough. I don't think those guys date your friends for very long. No. Or I guess they do, until the Dark Lord gets you to betray them. And that's... Mm. I mean, I'd be easily swayed by the Dark Lord if my friends called me Wormtail. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend to be the hero. Look, if the Dark Lord is if the Dark Lord is on my doorstep and being like, "Yo, I'll fucking kill you," it's like, oh. fine, fine. <laughs> I guess I'm not busy this weekend. Say no more, fam. I. <laughs> What's well, a little betrayal? Like, if the Dark Lord's threatening to torture me with, if they're just gonna have mm. a cadaver me, fair game. I don't need to betray my friends for that. That seems quite peaceful, actually. If what you're saying is like I get locked in a dungeon and crucioed forever, oh, I fold. I fold pretty quick. Like House of Cards. Like a lot of people be like, I would never betray my friends. If fucking Voldemort showed up and started crucioing, crucioing you, you'd betray quite a few people. I think mm. more mm. than you think. Maybe not everyone, oh. but more than you think. More more than your friends that call you Wormtail. I think you're right on that. Yeah. Like the people that yeah. call you Wormtail as like a point of like socializing <laughs> are probably those people you betray when the Dark Lord comes crucioing people. Oh yeah. All right. German. <laughs> Let's move on. We can talk about this in book three. We're just gonna head to movie in book three. That's okay. Yeah. Um Hermione shows up for kind of the first time. And I just want to say something, and this might be controversial. Mm. But I was an 11 year old boy once and i would have found hermione relentlessly annoying and i think the fact that harry and ron find her annoying is very good storytelling because i think that that's true to how it would happen 
the -hmm. things Ron says about Hermione, very unkind. I don't think I would have said those things. I was a pretty nice, I was a nicer kid than Ron is. And I think that's like a thing with Ron. However, that is a thing that 11 year olds definitely say. Like, I think this feels, I think a lot of people will read these books and watch these movies and be like, why are they such a dick to Hermione? And then I was like, of course they are she like they're just two dudes chilling and Hermione's and she's read all the books and she has all the knowledge and she's just like she's up in your grill when you don't want her to be and like you were just hanging out with your homie and like she just shows up I don't know I, I kind of got it I kind of get it I kind of get it as an adult obviously not but as an 11 year old like I, I get it mm. should they have bullied Hermione no but 11 year olds do that and I feel like it's very true to how 11 year olds would act I mean yeah, I do think it's kind of ironic that like the whole reason Hermione gets her feelings hurt is because Ron is because of Ron's fragile masculinity. Yeah, not good. I'm not defending this. I'm not defending this. Yeah. I think this is bad. But I think oh, it's, it's yeah. I think it's how eleven year olds work, and I think this is this is true to how it would really happen. Yeah, I think so. Is um, I think like both Harry and Ron are. Super I had a proud. I had a friend in high school. Her name is Crystal. Bless Crystal. She's one of the best people ever. If I had met her when I was 11, I would have fucking hated her. Mm. It, it took, it, like, I needed to meet her in high school as not a, not was, teenagers are also really shitty, but they are an evolved level of shitty. And had I met Crystal in grade school, I suspect I would not have liked her at all. But meeting her in high school and being friends with her there was very much a better experience. And I think maps the the harry potter analog quite well yeah i i i like the initial dynamic though because like harry and ron are like kind of a little useless and they resent that she's not and you're kind of <laughs> she, it's like a competency it's like not even fragile masculinity it's just like that feeling of being incompetent general competence yeah she knows all the spells like we're here to learn. Why does she know everything already? Like, I would feel like that. That's how I would feel. I'd be like, I came I came to school to learn the magic. I didn't know we already had to know the magic. Why does she and know I, the magic? And I feel like it would be especially sensitive for Ron because he's seen Bill, Charlie, Percy, Fred, George go through first year already. Yeah, and I think Fred and George is two years up, so he's been. Now that you say that, this has never occurred to me. Why the fuck doesn't Ron know any magic? He probably didn't have a wand. No, but he's seen every day. Like, there is a zero percent chance he's seeing a swish and flick for the first time in this class. I'm having a yeah. brain. I'm, well, I'm ha- I've never thought about this. How is this the first time he's seeing a swish and flick lesson? Like, surely when Guardian Levios, like, it, weird. I've never thought about this. Hey, Ron just yeah, doesn't pay I, attention. He's 11. <laughs> that's fair. Well, that's why he's so pissed. He's like, I should know this. But she knows Although, this to be fair, to be fair, I watched my mom cook food every single day. And yet, when it came mm. to making my first omelet, I still had to learn how to do it. Like, I'd watched her do it a hundred times. And I still had to learn how to, like, turn on the oven. And, like, you know, I maybe, maybe I'm being a little unfair to Ron here. Okay, what do you make? Okay. This scene is fucking nuts. We're firing a teacher. <laughs> what do you make of this broom flying lesson? Madam Hooch is fucking crazy. She's so bad at her job. I don't even know how Neville gets off the ground. Like, I love that this is like fun and magical, where it's like no one even knows. Neville is like, Neville hovers like three feet off the ground for a hot yeah. like 10 seconds before he just takes yeah. off. And Madam Hooch, 
does nothing. Does nothing. Just uh, doesn't grab him, doesn't try. But then later when he's flying through before she dives out of the way, she tries to do something with her wand, which leads me to believe there was a thing she could have done. This well, there's is bad. a whole ass spell. Like Hermione or Hermione or, or Dumbledore, like uh, Arresto Momentum. Yeah, there's, there's do something. You're in charge. But okay, honestly, I, I wish I had the excuse of saying like, I wrote these notes after a couple glasses of wine, but I came home from work and I I was rewatching this flying scene. And all that really stuck out to me was how how many innuendos there were in the scene. That's funny. I re because this is one of the scenes I rewatched fully when taking my notes. I didn't get a single (laughs) innuendo. She's like, hold your hand out and say up. Oh, sorry. I get it. I get it. Don't slide off the end. And I'm just sitting giggling like an absolute child. I yeah. Okay. Those are all there. I thought there was like a hidden deeper like joke that I missed. Okay. It's just just the normal the Harry the box standard Harry Potter like penis references. They're all uh, yeah. Yeah, it's so funny. Like the it's it's book three. We'll get there in book three, but let's do a little preview. When Harry's under the sheets and they're talking about like the ink dripping out of his wand and how he can't make a mess or he can't make too much noise because then dirt it's like it's like JK wrote a whole ass chapter as like an allegory for a masturbating teenager. And it's all covered in this like it's so funny. It's so well done. I'm def- I'm defending that. Like that is hilarious. But J.K. <laughs> does love a fucking hand job joke in her stuff, yeah. and this is another one of them. You're right. You're right. This is just standard Harry Potter, though. So it kind of went over my head. <laughs> but if you want to look for yeah. penis references in Harry Potter, you will find many. I just I wasn't looking for the. I, I it was just in a mood today, and I mean this scene <laughs> is like super important for. I like... was just in the mood for a dick joke, and Harry Potter <laughs> showed up. <laughs> And like this scene is like super important for like character development and like fun plot points, but all I really got from it today was the dick jokes. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um aside from the dick jokes, uh Neville is this is the one case where he's he's like incompetent to the point that he's overcompetent. Like he should not know how to fly, but he's so bad at magic he ends up like actually flying, which is a fun little bit of incompetency where you're so incompetent at it, you actually end up doing the thing too good. Cause like he misses all the walls for a while. He goes ducks and under oh, yeah. and like, he's doing great when he spins around the wall, it's just the broom hitting it, like he's ducking out of the way. Um he almost gets impaled twice. This is the first thing yeah. that gets Madame Hooch fired. I'll forgive Neville just taking off because like that must just happen. That's fine. Right. Mm-hmm. Her not stopping Neville or try even trying. That's a warning. That's suspicious. Neville almost getting impaled twice on the various sharp objects attached to this castle is problem number two. And problem number three is leaving the rest of the kids unattended with these brooms, knowing full well that they're going to fucking fly them. Right? Like at work, I supervise archery an activity where you give kids real bows and arrows and they shoot things with them if someone that i worked with right like i manage all these things the 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 easiest thing you could do to get fired at my work if you want me to if you like i wonder what i could do today that brad would fire me i want to get fired today leave the kids unattended with the bows and arrows it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. what you say to them it doesn't matter. I'm going to leave. I'm going to take this kid all the way to the hospital wing. It's way over. That'll be like an hour. Right? Don't fly. Do you think that works with kids? Like if I tell the kids, yeah, here are the bow and arrows. There are the targets. Just stay here. 
I'm going to leave for an hour. Don't shoot them while I'm gone. Don't you, don't you do that, you 11-year-olds with no impulse control? Yeah, so... And like, and we know from 30 seconds later in the scene that McGonagall is in her office overlooking the flying field. What is to stop Hooch from zooping up there on her broom, knocking on the window, being like, hey, jump on, you gotta watch this shit. Rachel, these, these teachers need to be fired. If this is the best the Wizarding World can do, it's pretty, it's, 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 it's bleak. It's not good. It's grim. It's, Anyways, Malfoy's a dick, picks up the thing. We know Malfoy's a dick. We don't need to dive into this. That's fine. Malfoy's a piece of shit. He flies around with the remember all. Harry showcases his ability. Never flying before. Just fucking owns Malfoy and catches the remember all. Hermione, Hermione typical Hermione. Don't, Harry. Please. We'll get in trouble. You're not allowed to. This is why. Like, if I'm Harry Potter, I find Hermione fucking annoying. Like, what are you yeah. talking about? I'm going to defend Neville's honor, Hermione. Does that mean nothing to you? Um, mm-hmm. McGonagall goes full fucking, you know, underground gambling on the Quidditch mm-hmm. and finds her seeker and breaks the rules and gets a first year in on the team. And that's the broom scene. Very fun. Very whimsical. We're firing Madame Hooch, I think is where I land on that scene. Several, several times over firing and, and potentially liability lawsuit. The fact that she doesn't know Why? a basic Why? charm. Okay. Well, it's you're right. Me. You're right. You're of right. The, 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 she's getting sued for the sharp objects attached to the castle. Well, sharp objects. But like, how do you also not have some sort of protective charm on those brooms to keep them from flying higher than yeah, five Yeah. What the fuck? Here? You're right. I've never thought about this either. Is there not like a, a break there on these brooms? Surely you can charm these brooms to not fly any higher than 10 feet. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, you're or right. like stay within a radius of you. Right. Or they can only or go up and down. They can't go speed. like it's like holding the shift key in Photoshop when you're moving something around. Like it has to follow the grid. Like it can't just fly. Yeah. Like there has to be there has to have been something, some sort of preventative measure that she didn't take. So it, all in my head, all I'm seeing is just like dollar signs for Neville's broken wrist. Yeah, the best thing that happened in this podcast was I just got more ways that Madame Hooch failed in her duty to protect yeah. the children of Hogwarts. Because I had a long list and you've managed to add to it, <laughs> which is very, very impressive. Um, we get some. We get to the mystery. Somewhere in this broom scene, we get the mystery. Gringotts, mm. the safest place ever. It's not Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> for, can we just talk about for the safest places ever they sure are not very safe yeah. a lot of unsafe shit happens in the safest places in the wizarding world i mean maybe the rest of the place is just like really really dangerous like maybe yeah, it's just maybe a it's matter all, of maybe it's a matter of scale right like <laughs> you're right maybe it's a perspective issue where it's like we don't see how shitty everything else is so these feel unsafe until you find out that like everything else is worse you're right that's fair okay yeah, like God- Godric's hollow is still reeling from a double homicide <laughs> yeah sure yeah, yeah you're not wrong i cannot prove that the rest of the wizarding world is safer than this so i think that's a fair <laughs> In a court of law, I would lose this case. I cannot prove. I cannot prove. I cannot prove the thing that I'm trying to say. Um, but yeah, Gringotts gets broken into. There's a mystery. Will any of the adult uh, adults figure this out? Absolutely not. It's going to take three 11 year olds, mm-hmm. two of which have no fucking idea. With it, only one of them is smart. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're gonna. They're gonna figure this out. 
but yeah, it's cool. This this is a fun little, you know, it's not highbrow. It's not like if I'm thinking of all the best. I, I'm currently watching season four of True Detective. Like if we're talking like some of the best mysteries ever, this is not on the list. But hey, there's a mystery in our wizard movie, and it's it's pretty quirky. It's fun. And it's a mystery that a child could. could it's a mystery grasp. that a child could solve, and it's believable that the children do solve it. That's what makes yeah. it so shocking that the adults don't is that within the movie that we're watching, like I believe that when they get to the end and they've solved it, I believe that the actual kids in that movie at their skill level could have solved this problem, mm-hmm. which is what which is what makes it weird that none of the teachers can. To be fair, there's like five teachers. Hooch is not paying attention to her own class and Hooch's- Snape and Quirrell are involved. So that's there. So we're left with like we're left with like two teachers anyway. Yeah, and Bins isn't gonna do shit. Bins, 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 Bins isn't in this movie. No, he exists though. Not, not in the movie I watched. He's not around to help the kids in this movie. Can you imagine though, like Harry and Quirrell are fighting in front of the mirror of Arized, and Bins walks down. He's like, "What the fuck? I don't get paid overtime for this. <laughs> I don't get paid enough for this." <laughs> Right, any notes on the general mystery here? My thoughts on the mystery in this movie are fine. It's the same mystery from the books. It serves its function. It's not particularly impressive, but it does the job. It pushes yeah, the it I, pushes the plot forward. I just like in terms of like movie adaptation, I love how Emma Watson, like baby Emma Watson, delivers her lines anytime there's a mystery. It's just with like a little extra force. It's like ooh. I can't remember a specific line, but the one I'm thinking of is like right at Christmas as she's about to leave. And she's like, we haven't looked everywhere at the library. Not the restricted section. She really emphasizes, she, she emphasizes parts of her lines far more than other parts. I agree. And, and like, it's definitely like a child actor thing. And like, it's, it's something she refines down the line. But it's one of those charming aspects to be of having... It's a child actor thing, and I know this wasn't Emma Watson's upbringing. It's also a theater actor thing. Like, I remember yes. when I did theater as a kid, um, when <laughs> I would get auditions and scripts in for, like, television commercials. I did a commercial for the Olympics when they were here in 2010. And I remember I kept getting notes being like, just taught you can't emphasize, like, you're not projecting to an audience in a concert hall. Like, you don't have to hit the back. Like, the microphone is right above your head. You don't need to enunciate every consonant so that they you know what i mean like i think that that's i think it's like untraining a theater technique is always difficult you can always tell when you watch movies who is theater trained and who's not because of the way they speak so i think it's just right it's just part of it as well but it's so cute i really like it is very it is very cute yeah yeah um quidditch sports fun those are my notes on the quidditch scene i will not i will not recap my thoughts on the the system of quidditch It's fun in this movie. If you want to hear my thoughts on Quidditch as a sport and where I think it could be improved, there's a book podcast that you probably listen to. I don't want to make people listen to it here as well. So uh, I love sports. I'm a sports fan. And Harry's flying around on the broom. Wood is Wood gets out of class to teach Harry out. That's a great deal for Oliver Wood. Gryffindor gets a seeker. Uh, Megano go gets uh, a bunch of money on her underground gambling ring that she's surely mm-hmm. a part of. Okay. I have two quick notes. First, I like how Hooch says, I want a nice, clean game. And then she does absolutely nothing to enforce it. Um, yeah, she's fucking fired again. Hooch is just right. Within, 
30 seconds, I think Oliver Wood gets legit concussed and he falls on the <laughs> ground and he might be dead. He falls from like, it must be a hundred feet. And she's like, eh, right. that's fine. Um, but then the second thing, and this is an adaptation comment. I really like how the movie shows you how active the game is. Cause when you read the books, it seems really, really dumb that scoring with the quaffle is only 10 points, but then catching the stitch is 150. So you're like, why would you even bother with the quaffle? Um, but I think the movie does a really good job of showing how fast paced the game is. That if you dither around, you fuck about, it doesn't matter if you, if you catch about, the snitch. Yeah. yeah. If your team catches the snitch, but you're just absolutely outclassed by the other team's seekers, it's not going to matter. So I liked that the movie took the opportunity to show you just how fast. The yeah, game was. it has like the I pacing like of some mix of like lacrosse and rugby. Like, I almost thought like more like basketball, like very quick. I think that I think the mechanics of the sport are like basketball. That's the, obviously the inspiration. But I think in yeah. terms of the intensity and like the contact and the like that's yeah. reminding me more of lacrosse and rugby, rugby, like a mix of those two yeah. sports, maybe. Yeah, but I just I thought that was a nice change because I really had a hard time picturing why you would even bother with the quaffle until I saw the movie. So I I, I liked how they adapted that. Yeah, I'm just a sports head, and every time Quidditch comes up, every time Quidditch comes up in the book, I actively don't like it. Every time it comes up in the movies, I'm like sports, my sports break. It's like a little break for me. Sports break. Oh, sports, sports. Yeah, it's like having a sports <laughs> day at school for me. I'm so stoked every time. <laughs> right. And yeah, Harry catches the snitch. He gets his big moment. It's pretty mm -hmm. cool. He gets mm -hmm. to be the hero. I think it's, I like the book. I think it's the one thing where he is truly a great wizard. Like he's good at this. He goes in there, he catches the snitch. And and this, and this I think is also believable. This is parallel in many sports. Like so many sports have these prodigies that come like undrafted or not undrafted, they get drafted in the first round and they're the youngest player mm -hmm. to ever do it. And the, the mm -hmm. only difference is those people have played the thing before and <laughs> Harry, yeah. Harry hasn't. So that's a bit unbelievable. But yeah, it works for the movie. Like Harry gets his big moment and it's fun and you mm -hmm. get the, the mystery, mystery is mysterying. And they successfully pull off, as even as an adult, they successfully pull off the Hermione knocking Quirrell out of the way is the thing that stops the spell but they make it look like that is perfectly done like if you're watching with a keen I, yeah. eye you'll see what really happened but you can totally <laughs> believe hermione's like based on the evidence that hermione is seeing i understand why the kids believe that snape did it yeah i i really like that it's it, yeah again one of those things as an adult if you're watching it you're like okay it's a little ham-handed but as a as a kid i didn't even but that's what I'm saying is I don't think it is. Like I think as an adult watching it, knowing what the mystery is and knowing that it was Quirrell, I still get like, wait a second, was that Snape? Like I still get the Yeah. Like it's really well done where it's like you can you can mm -hmm. definitely view it both ways. Like it's a very well filmed little plot twist that Hermione's figuring out. Yeah. I also like how many adults are in the booth, the stands, I guess. Like who's coming to watch these Quidditch games? Yeah, right. Each house has like 20 wizards in it. Like who's coming to, yeah. you're right. Is it, is it parents? Is it what? I don't know. But yeah. um, that was, it was a really well done. I imagine and... just from like an events coordination perspective, like having seating in a sport that has a vertical difference between how high you can play it would be very difficult like obviously mm -hmm. the line of the goal post is probably the best place to put seats but it's mm -hmm. like you can't guarantee a view at any point like that's 
That's rough. I also no. want to shout out real quick the package of the broom. Like, why, why are we wrapping the broom? <laughs> why are we it's even so bothering? obviously a broom. This is like when when you see like an Amazon thing and it's like, and it's like this this item is shipping and packaging that will reveal what it is. Would you like to put it in a standard box so that the gift isn't ruined? Because they they full yeah. on fucking like the, props to the three the trio who full on pretends like they have no idea what's they, in this bag. They don't know Everyone at the bag. table is like, oh, what could it possibly be? It's <laughs> they, a mysterious broom shaped object. Yeah, they commit to it. It's the same in the book as well. But the, props to the actors who commit to the the surprise. It, just, it does spark joy. Yeah. All I, right. Even like the silliness of it. It's it so funny. It's time. so funny. Okay. We're moving on. Uh, we got Christmas in the mirror of era said next is like the next two points. Um, mm-hmm. All I really have to say about this Christmas vibes in anything immaculate. The, mm-hmm. the sweaters immaculate, the getting the invisibility cloak and like the parts of the scene where Harry has like his head popping out, but the rest of his body is cloaked. Amazing. Yeah. I just love this. This is great. funny every time that Hermione walks up and she's like hey I think you should break the rules but without me bitch bye and then she just fucks off that right. makes me laugh every time Fuck, we forgot the troll the troll happens before this that's my bad oh yeah let's back up to the troll we need to talk about the troll I don't care about the troll that much but I care about how what it does for Hermione and like the like it's a bit of storytelling okay so let's situate where is the troll the troll the troll is, is the troll is around the Quidditch stuff I just skipped a bit that's okay it doesn't matter. Yeah, We're going out of order. It's yeah, fine. Just before, just before Quidditch, yeah. But I don't want to miss the troll. So the the professor, the, the play here, Professor Quirrell calls the troll in to distract everyone so he can go to Fluffy. The the Professor Quirrell running and yelling troll every time, again, every funny. single act. There's no actor that is miscast. They are all chewing up the scenery. They all seem to genuinely have fun being in this movie. Like These are all amazing actors who've done very serious projects. It really seems like this is their fun thing. <laughs> like This is their, yeah. their agent found a fun one for them, and it also happened to make a billion dollars, and it also happened to, they also happened to be amazing in it. But yeah, um, the guy who plays Coral, who also plays the priest in The Last Kingdom, which I was shocking when I figured it out. They do not look like the same person. Anyways, um, <laughs> he absolutely kills the line delivery. The mystery of like Snape sneaking out the side, like you don't know quite what it is he's doing. That's pretty cool. The one question mm-hmm. I have about the troll, though, mm-hmm. is they get in. The troll CGI is bad, but I don't want to hold it against the movie because they clearly mm-hmm. prioritized elsewhere. And I think this is probably the best you could do for the time. Um, mm-hmm. The whole situation happens, and then yeah. Hermione lies about it. Now, she does this in the book, too, but it's more obvious in the movie, just the way, again, Emma Watson really enunciates it. Like, actually, it's my fault, Professor. And it's like, Hermione's lying about this, about mm-hmm. what happened. Like, I am smart, and I thought I could handle the troll, yada, this, yada, that. Why does she not? just tell the truth like this is one of the weirdest things is at no point am i presented with a theory like why if she just said hey professor i wasn't feeling she doesn't have to say that they bullied me hey professor Mm -hmm. i needed to go to the bathroom (laughs) like that's why yeah i was in the bathroom bathroom because i needed to pee professor or like because i was whatever this isn't like i was in the bathroom (laughs) i missed the announcement that there was a troll my good friends harry and ron who definitely were not bullying me five minutes ago they knew I was in the bathroom and they came and saved me. Like, why is that not a thing? Like, who who is get? Because, like, 
the lie also includes that Harry and Ron came and saved her. So like, why? I don't understand why we're lying here. I, I, I've never understood it and I don't understand it now. I, the only thing I can think of is that it's, <clears throat> pardon me, is that it's a possible olive branch to the boys. Uh, like, I want to because... be, I want to, thanks for saving me. I, I want to show you that I'm committed to this trio now. Yeah, like I, I know that you guys were definitely not supposed to come down here. So I will attract the attention to myself. Okay. And take that heat for you. And you guys can look good. Even though, and I do have to finally admit this because I rewatched the scene. It is like bottom tier wizardry to knock this troll out. It's funny uh, to me, but this this feels like what eleven year olds would have to do to knock a troll out. Like they don't really yeah. know the spells, and like he can barely work it, and like the club accidentally falls on his head. Like I think it's I think it works. Yeah, out. it's it's a very lucky sequence of events. But uh, yeah, I just think it's Hermione kind of like reaching out that like peace offering, like. Hey, I give you guys shit for doing this all the time. I will take the heat for this so that maybe you will see that I am chill too, even though that's not true. She's a deeply not chill person, but she will make the effort. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I I don't think I have much else to say about the troll scene other than the trio's here. This is the scene that brings the trio together. It works. Mm -hmm. They get rid of the troll in a way that I believe 11-year-olds would. This is fully believable. Mm -hmm. This feels up to Ron's level of magic to, <laughs> to do this spell. Um, it's again, a, a little setup and payoff. Like the one class mm -hmm. where we saw them practicing spells was this one spell and we get to see it used like 20 minutes later. Uh, again, very competently done setups and payoffs. Uh, Harry just mm -hmm. sticking the wand up the nose. Glad he's doing something because like with the centaurs and shit, he just does nothing. <laughs> I'm yeah. glad that he's doing something. And the, the funny like like 11 year old like mm -hmm. oh shit that was boogers like they, they don't comp they don't comprehend that they almost got killed by a mountain troll like what a monumental thing yeah. this is they're just like oh there's boogers on my wand what the hell yeah no it, i i do appreciate that scene even though like it is really gross the troll boogies like they could have animated that but they did not and it's that, that was the thing is like, I, i've seen this before this happens at work all the time when i give people a task and i don't specify how i want it done they'll all they'll overdo it because like if i've i find this if i've given you your first task like I, my whole mm -hmm. job is coordinating tasks and so mm -hmm. i take all these inputs and i have this thing that we need to get done and i take all the inputs and i assign them so that they become outputs right like who's going to take care mm -hmm. of all this stuff and who's going to super that's that's my whole thing is managing inputs and outputs to accomplish things and so i find that the first time i ever give someone a thing that's theirs i'm like you need to go do this and when that's done then that part of the project's done and we can come back to this thing. But you're just going to go off and do your part of the project unsupervised and come back when it's done. Um, they'll always overdo it because they don't want to mess that one up because then they won't get a second one. Like They just think that that's how yeah. it works. That if they don't overachieve <laughs> on the first one, that I won't give them a second project. Right? And we're all like mm -hmm. this. This is what happens to everyone. This isn't unique to the people I work with or mm -hmm. the people in this story. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that's a little bit of what's going on here is the people want to overachieve a little bit. Mm -hmm. right. with the troll boogies with the troll boogies yeah this was someone's job it's like they got to sign the troll yeah. boogies like the cgi team's got the troll right we've got the casting mm. we've got the costumes like this this whole job was the troll boogies because if they fuck one up the guy got the boogies yeah one guy on the set deck team there's a whole team of set decorators and the mm -hmm. set deck master the dude who's in charge of it hey jim 
Your job is the troll boogies. Like that is the decorate. You need to work with the makeup team or the props team or whoever's making the troll boogies. And you need to get them and you need to put them on the troll at the end of the sequence. And then he made mm-hmm. the fucking gross. He overdid it. He made the grossest, <laughs> most boogiest <laughs> thing the ever. And then look, we're shouting him out. I hope he's doing more stuff. But that was clearly a first task. Just, just as well as the castle guy. Yeah. Maybe not as well as the castle guy. No, the castle guy didn't overdo it. He did it perfectly. He, he did it just enough. This was the set deck guy's first chance to do like a project uh, by themselves. And they wanted to overdo it. So it was impressive. I would be surprised if now he's doing like the dune sandworms. They're like, you have a good understanding of viscous liquids. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, t- he typed, what a weird thing to say. He typecast himself in the set deck world. <laughs> Call Jim if you need viscous liquids on your set. <laughs> do you Jesus have, Christ. Do you have a scene that needs viscous liquids? <laughs> Jim. The, visco- the viscosity Jim. of this movie is off the charts. <laughs> Jim from Harry Potter 1's got you. This is his first job. Look how good he did. He's only he's only mastered the technique by now. It's like molasses. All right, that's our God. ninth. That's our ninth. Fuck you to the audience listening to this hoping for a movie <laughs> breakdown. I'm glad that was you this time because I feel like I'm usually the one going off the rails and you indulge me. But I'm glad that you took one truly off the rails there. Okay, we're we're done with the troll. It was cool. People had fun. Hermione's part of the team now. Christmas sweaters. It's great. Uh, I love what this says for Ron. I like that Ron stays back to hang out with Harry. That's a great little bit of friendship. Hermione comes to say goodbye, which is pretty fun. Again, really good little setups and payoffs. Like the chest is pretty obvious, but it's not so obvious that like they're just kind of playing it in the background. And that's pretty cool. I like this sequence. I like it too. I I think it's, there are not a lot of moments where you get to see the three of them just like chilling. Yeah. And being a little silly. And like, even though they are talking about all the stuff they have to do, it's kind of like they're at rest. They're it's the holidays and they still have that like very fun dynamic. That's still very new to them. So it's always, it's, it's very heartwarming. feels very nice. Yeah. Well, Ron and Harry are doing all their heartwarming. Nice. So we get the mirror of Erised, which Mm. I don't know. This is just one of those things that just is not the same as it is in the book. And I don't know what it is. Like, it just doesn't capture quite the... In the Mm. book, it's almost... I I would go so far as to say that the Mirror of Erised chapter is what makes you bank on J.K. Rowling as an author. Like, you read the rest of the book and it's fun and you think it'll sell and whatever. But the chapter that makes you think, oh, this is a person that can elevate the writing and truly, like... We're going to get a really good, like, because by the time JK's done book seven, like, she's truly evolved as a writer. The one sequence in the books that I think truly shows the potential of the writing is the Mirror of Erised thing, which is just so heartbreaking every time. And in the movie, it's, it's fine. So I think they do one thing very right and they do one thing very wrong, which kind of, it gives me like a bit of a whiplash. So... I really like the decision to exclude Harry's extended family from the mirror. Because in the books, it shows like the parents closest to him, but then, you know, yeah, all the potters. I, agree. I think that was the right choice um, because, you know, Harry has family. He has an aunt, uncle, and a cousin, but it's not his family that he wants, it's his parents. So I think that was a very, very good choice a good change 
it makes him seeing and this is the first time he's ever seen them he doesn't know what they look like he has to recognize them right so i think that was a very powerful moment i think the bad change or maybe just the failure to fully adapt is they did not okay maybe two things one bigger than the other they didn't show harry coming back again and back again and back yeah that's part of it i think they needed to show show maybe just like a quick little two minute thing of him coming there for at least a week but the big thing that i really had a problem with uh was that they do not let richard harris sink his teeth into the lines from the book yeah yeah, it like, just doesn't feel we the don't same. Get to, we don't get to hear Richard Harris say it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live, which I think is a crime. I, right. Like, like Richard Harris bodies that scene if he's given the book original dialogue, because part of I think what hits so emotionally hard about the mirror of Arizad scene is realizing that yes it can feel good to be in this moment and see what you want and almost be able to touch it but if you want to move forward and actually experience your life you can't try to hold on to these intangible things that will hold you back and yeah they also just didn't make the parents 21 yeah which (laughs) like look look Parents dying at like 40 or whatever, also bad. But I think we can all agree that how we feel about the tragedy of death is directly correlated to age in all cases. Right? Mm -hmm. Like the older someone is, it doesn't matter what they died from. We feel less bad. And the younger someone is, we feel more bad. I think it's a direct scale, you know? And I think like 21 and 40 is a big difference. It's double the life, you know? Like these are 40-year-old actors, and I just don't feel as bad as I do if they were 21-year-olds. Right? And I... And I don't even know why, because to a kid, 21 years old is ancient. Like mm-hmm. when I when I was 13, I thought 16 year olds were old as hell. You know, yeah. like if I was seven, right, or eight or nine, and I was watching this movie, like a 21 year old might as well be a hundred year old. Might as well be, yeah. Like, like, thousand, I don't know why yeah. you wouldn't. Yeah, it's just the, the Mirror of Arison sequence is fine, but it actively is. I think it's actively. It doesn't just. It doesn't capture how I felt. In the book, I feel like there's a giant hole of emotion missing from here because you feel yeah. bad and it gives you the information you need. Right. Like it still gives you the same information. Harry's missing his parents. Dumbledore wants to teach him a lesson about how this kind of thing. I always pining after you want is dangerous. But yeah, it lacks the bravado of the lines. Like it lacks the dialogue. Mm. It lacks the like impact of seeing 21 year olds in the mirror. It lacks the impact of going back and getting again and like having it consume you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just doesn't quite capture it for me. Like maybe it's a bit masochistic of us, but like I really wanted to feel like that scene punched me in the gut. Yeah, because um, it does in the book. It does. It really does. I cry yeah, every, time. every time. Like I read these books once a year. I, I'm starting late this year. I'm actually starting next week on them because I I decided to read a bunch of really long. I'm reading The Count of Monte Cristo right now, and I read oh, that's on a giant book. Right. The problem is, Rachel. Hold, first, I want to say, can we really take a tangent for The Count of Monte Cristo? Because again, fuck you. This is my podcast. Um. <laughs> I think 
that we should go back to releasing books one chapter per week in the local newspaper because the Count of Monte Cristo, which is a book that I'm aware was released one chapter per week because you can't just publish and buy into books. It's expensive and no one's going to buy them and you can't keep them, whatever. So these stories are published in parts. Like I think Pride and Prejudice was three or four parts. You know what I mean? Like these Mm -hmm. books are not published. So Count of Monte Cristo, one chapter a week for however long that takes. Every single chapter absolutely slaps because it has to have like a beginning and a middle and an end. It has to have its like own contained story mm. that leaves you wanting the next chapter. And the feeling I get when reading this book is like, I can never put it down because each chapter has to have that moment where I want to read the paper next week. And I think we should go back to that style of publishing because holy shit, I've never experienced it before and I'm experiencing it for the first time. And it's like cocaine. I am like addicted to it. I am so into how this book is written. Anyways, once <laughs> once that's done, I'm going to read Harry Potter again. I think this just exposes that we are on entirely different levels of nerddom because manga still does that. New chapters of manga release every week, so you have to wait week to week. Oh, to did get they? New no, chapter. I'm. Nah. It still happens. I'm waiting for the new episode of Jujutsu Kaisen. <laughs> No, I'm reading books from the 1800s. <laughs> That's where I'm at. Uh, no, the one book from the 1800s that I read that was re- really serially like that was Bleak House. Uh, I've never that, read that. By Dickens. And that took me an entire goddamn semester. And I'm still so angry about how that book ended. If there's like any sort of crossover between those of you who read Bleak House by Charles Dickens and who are listening to this podcast now and are also <laughs> and, angry and, and about how it ended. And having clicked off for the nine other rants who went on. Please commiserate with me because I'm still, it's been 10 years and I'm still mad. All right, let's dive deep pot at gmail.com is the email for commiserations. Um, <laughs> we're done with the mirror. Error. I said, I don't want to dunk on it too much. It doesn't capture what it does in the books, but it's still fine. It does the job. Um, mm-hmm. The next thing that I have in my notes is the 11 year old being smarter than Hagrid is a vibe. Uh, this is the part mm-hmm. where they talk to Hagrid about like they're putting all the pieces together. The mystery is being solved. Uh, school's back. Christmas is done. We loved Christmas. It was cute and it was cozy and it was warm and it was wonderful. Um, but but good news. Voldemort only ever attacks the children in June or in May whenever the school year ends. So it's great because it gives time for people to figure it out. Like, I think we should just start killing Harry on the train like, before he can even settle. We really throw off the rhythm like he thinks he's got a couple months to like sink into the school year. Bam, fucking at the platform. Got yeah, him. now he's off his rhythm. Yeah, now he's off his rhythm. We, we got him at the platform. <laughs> he's rattled. Anyways, but Voldemort has not come up with that plan yet. And, if, and I mean, fortunately, but he's never going to change his plan. So he's got end of the school year only. And so um, the kids have some time over Christmas to piece this together. There is a sequence where they use the cloak, I believe, to, to come in and like steal the book from the restriction section. Which is pretty funny. Um, but yeah, Hagrid doesn't... He's Hagrid, and he just gives the game away. Were they interested in Fluffy? Well, of course they were interested in Fluffy. Um, this this does capture the book for me, where it's like, Hagrid, what the fuck are you doing? Like, come on, man. He's just so delightfully naive. He's just he like... Really, he wants to think everyone the engines, has this, like, the engines, for life. Yeah, the engine's turned on and no one's at the wheel. Like, just rolling through life, (laughs) having a good time, taking care of his dragons. Yeah, and he just wants everyone else to be as happy as he is about it. But unfortunately, 
Everyone's like, oh, that shit's super illegal, dude. Yeah, like, <laughs> you're gonna can't have it. You're gonna burn the castle down. Whoopsie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There was a there was a there was a guy in Canada this week. It was the funniest news story this week. Who got arrested for giving out business cards with samples of the cocaine he sells. Oh, and so a cop just God. went up to him and just asked for a card, pretending to want it. Anyways, so funny. I imagine Hagrid's like that's the level Hagrid's at, where yeah. the guy is like, "This is such a good way to get my product out to the market. There's no way I'll be fooled by a cop just coming up and asking for a business card." I want. Oh. That's not a good tangent to go on. Um, what what uh, do you think Hagrid would hand out with his business cards? Oh shit! I don't actually think this is a good allegory or like analogy in that way. It was more like the the benevolent ignorance <laughs> of it all, where it's just like mm. this is a perfect plan. There's no way this could be <laughs> fooled by even the smartest, even the slightest bit of of prodding at it. You know, like. This yeah. guy just confidently went out with these business cards and thought, I'm going to get my product out to the market in samples. He saw, like, the conditioner bottles, and he was like, a, oh, sam- a sample pack free trial. I got that. <laughs> right? And then, like, and then yeah, the same as Hagrid. Like, dragon egg. A, 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 like, There's a dragon no egg? Can... Oh, hold up. I want a dragon egg, and you want information about the dog? I mean, that's a the great... very secret dog? The very it's a secret great dog. trade. Yeah, it's a great trade. There's no way this could go wrong for anyone. Yeah, I Not suppose this me. is also, while we're on Hagrid, also a good time to mention the detention. Again, doesn't quite capture what it is in the book. It's still just as stupid. There's yeah. something missing from it. Like, again, it does, like, it, it fills the function properly. It enhances mm-hmm. the mystery. It introduces me to the centaurs. I get all the Mars is bright tonight kind of stuff. I, I get the unicorn blood. I get the fang and I get the Malfoy. But I get I get all these pieces, and yet it's just like I'm putting them all in my pot, and the soup just doesn't taste quite as good. Like it doesn't capture like the, it's almost like a it's a very magical scene in the book. Like it's, mm. it's surreal and so stupid, but also funny and also like a lore dump, and it just so seamlessly intertwines. Mm. And I feel like in the movie, it just feels like it's performing its function, but doesn't like quite feel the. Okay. What okay, I see what you're what if they slowed down the sequence where Coral gets up from the unicorn and he kind of swishes towards Harry? <laughs> that, that's slow mo, no, but like, we but talk what if they changed? So, okay, so obviously, that's like horrible. The, the most hilarious practical effect that they did in the movie was just having a cloak hanging on a wire and swishing it back and forth, but how? <laughs> fucking scary would it have been if they had someone in that cloak get up and then just slowly like eldritch creature crawl towards harry and actually have him get close before forens shows up like i think what that i think what the scene felt like it was missing was stakes and maybe that's hindsight because like I was like pee my pants terrified of that floating cloak when I was nine and I saw the movie for the first time. Um, so maybe now I'm just like a bit. Um, yeah, I think part of it's the, the effects as well. Like, like yeah. as much as I don't want to hold the troll effects against the movie in the book, the troll is dumb, but it also feels Danger. like it could kill the kids. 
Mm-hmm. In the movie, like fuck that troll's never <laughs> like if they don't hit the club, like that troll's never killing the kids. You know, like you just don't no, ever just you just run don't, away. You don't ever feel like that troll is gonna kill the kids. Mm-hmm. Whereas the same here, like the, all the dangerous stuff is happening, and yet I never really feel like Harry's in act any actual danger. Mm-hmm. Because yes, I think. I think it- Sorry. sorry. (laughs) I think the scene is good up until they get into the forest. Like, I think all the Malfoy showing up and being terrified, like, I get all the emotion out of that. It's like once we're in the forest, it just doesn't quite feel. Yeah, the tension is there. I just really, I think. And I'm being mean to my nine year old self because I would have probably cried. But if they had just really sunk their teeth into what would have made this blood drinking creature so scary and invested in it and just had that play out a little slower i think like that's a scene that you could really sink your teeth into but like that said um i i found it really effective when i was nine when i watched it for the first time it makes me giggle now but you know like hindsight's 2020 yeah it is unfortunate that you can't really like get back to our nine-year-old selves to have them on the podcast to see what they thought about yeah. it like, there's a certain stupidity to having adults talk about a kid's movie on a thing where, like, it, <laughs> it does like there's a certain like you kind of have to admit that there's just a certain amount of it that's not going to work for adults in the same way it does mm-hmm. for kids and that's fine i just i just feel like this scene did not capture the same yeah. danger that it, it feels dangerous in the book even when i but but i'm reading the books as an adult too and those are kids books like it feels dangerous as an adult reading the book so, like, surely there's a way to make it feel dangerous as an adult watching the movie as well. Because I am comparing how I feel as an adult to how I feel as an adult, not how I feel as a kid. So I think maybe I am being fair. I alone have judged my actions, and I have come to the conclusion that I was not in the wrong. That, to be fair, that's worked for so many people. You know how many people investigate themselves? Like, we didn't find any wrongdoing. It's oh, like, shit, no, no way. It's it's politics it's happening again i i wouldn't i'm not gonna name anyone or anything i just i'm just noting a pattern i'm just saying it happens a lot it is suspicious how many people investigate themselves and find they did nothing wrong Mm, i think dumbledore is one of those people (laughs) every year he gets to the auditing it's like another defense against the dark arts teacher dead success voldemort was voldemort was only a professor he didn't actually kill harry great job I've, investi- I did it. I've investigated my hiring and found that I've done nothing wrong. Full bonuses just for me. Full bonuses for myself. <laughs> all right. uh, after the whole, after all that shit happens, I think we can kind of, we're at the end of the movie. I don't know where we are. We're, we made it. The next thing that happens is the end of this movie where we get, we get to the puzzles. They get to the dog. They figure out the harp that genuinely scary. Even as an adult, when the dog like hovers over them, it's possible. It is possible. Um, I think, and I want to talk about this scene as a, as a goodwill gesture to the audience of this podcast so that when I shit on some of the other movies, I have noted what I'm talking about. This scene is different than it is in the books. The characters do different things. The challenges are slightly different. Some are entirely missing. However, This was an adaptation that perfectly captured the spirit of what's trying to happen in the books, right? Each person gets a chance to shine. The challenges are sufficiently difficult that I believe that they would protect this thing, but also sufficiently easy that 11-year-olds could do them. 
right? There's the believability aspect that someone has already done these. So it helps with some of like the key, the one that, that's correct has a broken wing, like great choices. This is a perfectly adapted sequence, right? The characters get all their character beats. The challenges all happen. We get to where we need to go. And it happens a little bit differently, but really checks off all the boxes about what this scene achieved in the books and is perfectly adapted to the movie to achieve the same thing in a slightly different way. And I love it. Everything from the vines and Hermione, like, be, of course, Hermione is the one that can kind of figure out how to get them out of that situation. Mm -hmm. That's super cool. The chess, I mean, the chess sequence is just iconic on TikTok now, but separately from <laughs> separately from the slow-mo of Ron, I think the slow-mo person, also someone who got slow-mo as their first job. And they're yeah. like, I put slow-mo on fucking everything in this movie. And no one, can, <laughs> right? And so... Other than that, though, like Ron takes charge. He is in charge. Like you be the queen, you be the. I'm gonna be the knight, and this is these are our moves. And the other two in the tree are like, yep, Ron's got this shit. When it comes to the key, Harry's flying around and he's got it, but the other two are giving it like their best shot. Like I, this whole sequence is perfectly adapted, even though it's different from the book. It is perfectly adapted. And I want to do that because I don't want anyone emailing me be like, oh, you're just mad that it's different than the book. That is not true. That would never make me mad because this is different than the book, but adapted in a way that is perfect. I think this sequence is perfect from when they get to the dog to when they get to Coral. Perfect. I only slightly disagree. That's okay. We don't have to feel um, the same. No, but the thing, the thing is I mostly feel the same. Like I think the chess scene is absolutely iconic. Memes aside, um, is the I think it's one of the first times you get to see that like Ron's actually smart. And strategic and he's not just like the comedic relief so i you know you have to love that obviously harry and hermione get their moments the the one that i really really missed and i think i talked about this in the uh the book chapter two i missed the potion scene in the movie i really 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 wanted the potion scene in the movie because i think there are two aspects of hermione that are really impressive one she's very smart she's very well read so, of course, she would remember facts about a plant that she learned about in herbology or she just straight up read about. Uh, but she's also very clever. Um, so yeah, good I, deductive reasoning. Like she's able to figure this potion thing out based yeah, on some of the like, based on the riddle, but also based on just math of like which ones were drank and which ones weren't. And yeah, so she's not just a compendium of knowledge when she's faced with a problem, just like Harry and Ron, she can also use her strengths to figure it out. So my one complaint about this adaptation is that we didn't get to see the potion scene. Although I, I do understand in terms of like adaptation, that'd be really, really difficult to do. Cause you can't just have like the text of the riddle appear on the screen. That would be super clumsy. And then you'd have to like have an extended shot on the cups to show the different sizes and the colors. So I know why it's not there, but I still miss it. Sure. Um, like, would you, I think the thing that you're missing is a chance for Hermione to show off her mental acuity. Like she has yes. all this knowledge, but she also has a very like, it's like her application of the knowledge is more than just saying it out loud whenever the dumb characters don't have it. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. I think that, I think the beginning scene achieves that. I think that like, when they fall in the vines or whatever it is and Hermione is able to. Yeah. It's a bit of a, yeah, it, it mixes the two a bit. So I, I do still really think it is, all of those scenes are super effective. The potion scene just has like a special place in my heart. Yeah. Okay, we're done with the the scene that 
but for me it was perfect for you a little less than perfect but we both really enjoyed mm -hmm. now we're gonna get to the fucking banana sandwich scene and I, I i have tried to feel <laughs> i have tried to feel something about this scene and i don't even know where to begin i want to start i have no fucking idea what's happening like coral does the thing and it, like this is not a bad scene. I'm I'm not getting to the point where I'm like, and this sucked, like I was with the forest and Mirror of Air said. Like this captures everything I need to capture. I just, like what is going on? We get there. Quirrell does the mystery, does the unwrapping of the turban. That's all sufficiently scary. Like this, as an adult, mm -hmm. I feel like that's that is weird Terrifying. and scary. The effects are great. I though how the mirror's working and how the stone gets into a pocket. It's like that that was confusing in the book, but it's so much more confusing when you see it happen <laughs> and you're like, I, I understand how the magic's working, but I'm not like I haven't been taught enough about magic to actually <laughs> understand how it works. And that's that's fine on its own. But by the time I can even wrap my head around how the magic is working, Harry is murdering his professor <laughs> and like he's gouging his eyes out, like boiling like, him like I and like Harry is just <laughs> like I get it. He's he's in a weird spot. And he's got to get out of it. But in the book, <laughs> Harry does not murder his professor via like eye gouging. I think, yeah, Quirrell just grabs him. And that's what. And the Voldemort spirit just leaves the body. Yeah. And, and then I think maybe Harry like puts his hands like he grabs his arm more. Right. Be but like, uh -huh. I don't know. It's but not... it's not like the medieval this eye is, gouging. Yeah, this is Game of Thrones. It's like we got We like yes. Oh, shit, I can boil them. It's yeah. Just, yeah. Like fuck. It's just I don't know. like in cold blood with his bare hands. Yeah. Like Quirrell, like it's not even like Quirrell keeps choking him after he starts kind of like burning. He lets go and he's like, oh shit, this feels real bad. Yeah, and then Harry looks at his bare hands and he's like could kill a man right now yeah and yeah he's just, he's just, yeah which i'm not i'm, I'm not insanity. not i'm not not defending it like harry's self-defense like i i get it you yeah. want to make but like he murders his professor here and yes his professor yeah. is voldemort and probably deserved the murder but harry potter just actively murders a professor here <laughs> and i just like i can't wrap my head around that while really wrapping my like head around we, the, there's too much happening just, at one time in this scene just sweep it under the rug like <laughs> Dumbledore kind of winks and he's like, naturally, what happened is an entire secret. Yeah, but they, like, they buried the lead with the dead. authorities. You're like, our professor <laughs> has gone missing. Did you know what happened? Absolutely not. I'll no tell idea. you what didn't happen. An 11 year old did not murder him <laughs> with his bare hands. With his bare hands after realizing he could boil him alive. <laughs> it's only dust. To shreds, you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this fucking mirror. It can move stones into pockets. It can move beings into the afterlife. Like, have we seen the veil? Like, we got magical shit that just moves people into the afterlife for no reason. Yeah. Why can't Harry this really thing? Did. Yeah. I really said, catch these hands. Like, also, Jesus we Christ. know full well from based on, like, this is a this is a corny fudge ministry. They ain't solving a single fucking crime. They don't even believe that Voldemort is back. Like they could send the Aurors to figure this out, and that you could have video evidence of Harry Potter murdering Quirrell, and they'd be like, "I'm not sure that's conclusive," and then just like walk off. Yeah, and then you get to book five, and Harry like farts under the covers, and they're like, "Illegal crowd oh, testing. Yeah, get him the fuck out." That's exactly right. <laughs> they got a very specific thing they're worried about, and that's Harry doing magic outside of school. Harry doing murdering inside of school is not Fine. on their priority list. Hey, totally okay. okay. Totally chill. Yeah. Cool. Um, I'm, I, that is my analysis of that scene. Like, it is a good scene, and I enjoy watching it. 
but like I have no idea what's happening. And then Harry's murdering a professor, and it, it's like it achieves it, everything it needs to achieve. But holy fuck, it takes me right the fuck out every time. Yeah, it is. It just the movie levels up. <laughs> like there's a level this movie is playing at, and then it just spikes for like, and you're like, it's like, yeah. If I was if I was reading the movie as like an ECG on like a heart rate monitor, it would be going like normal. <laughs> It'd be this giant spike. Like, did an earthquake happen in the middle of this movie? Like what was going on? No, it's just the murder. It's just Harry murdering his professor. <laughs> Send me your best emails telling me why Harry did not murder that professor, because I would like to know. As a lawyer, I would like to hear your legal justifications. I'm not a lawyer, so I'll hear any justification. Legal justifications I... <laughs> go to Rachel. Fun justifications. I'm not that picky. I want fun justifications, <laughs> Okay, too. you don't just want the legal ones. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. It's well, like working well, overtime. <laughs> all right. Let's dive deep pod at gmail.com for your justifications. And then basically the movie ends. Harry goes home. Huzzah, yeah. huzzah. Dumbledore explains some stuff. This is all He's not fine. going home. Not really. And then everyone cries. <laughs> That's right. Even yeah. though he's going to be miserable like the next morning. Yeah. He's literally going back to an abusive household, but uh, he has a photo album now. So it's okay. all right. I'm not going to lie, Rachel. I thought we were going mm-hmm. a little long, but we're just under two and a half hours, which is our normal podcast length. So we're doing great. Oh. We're doing so good. We have five minutes to do these awards. We might nice. go a little over, but we're killing it. This is awesome. Okay. I like how I we, we don't have an over. I keep saying I feel like we're going over. There's no over. <laughs> There's, no There's over. never been an over. <laughs> if we tried to have an over, we would just be a... Yeah. Anyway, oh, I mean, yeah. there's a non-zero amount of listeners like please fucking do an over please <laughs> figure out an over stop. please stop <laughs> i don't have two and a half hours okay uh we have our awards uh we're doing the same awards uh also can we, real quick let's name all the professors we're firing we got we, we stuck on hooch and we got the point across dumbledore's getting fired for his administration still mm-hmm. mcgonagall i'm still firing for the illegal i think it's like i I, I, there's a code of conduct when you work with children. You're not allowed to give them gifts and stuff. Mm. Like, you're not allowed to do that. And I don't, yeah, no, we're getting rid of McGonagall yeah. for that. Unfortunate, because she's good at everything else, but that's yeah. like Hagrid for the, just jeopardizing the whole fucking wizarding world for no reason. Yeah. We're getting mm-hmm. rid of Hagrid. Um, Snape actively bullies the kids, but I don't, I actually think Snape is better in the movie than in the book as a whole. Like, in all the movies, Snape is actively not nearly as bad. And I think. I think in the movie he might be the least fireable. He actively tries to save Harry's life multiple times. He is addicted to the students, which will get him fired in subsequent movies. But I don't know if he actually did anything but in this movie that's no. fireable. No, in this one, yeah, I think he was pretty okay. Uh, Quirrell, well, he mean, got like, he got murdered, so fuck it, so, that's fine. <laughs> he uh, got fired from this life. Flitwick's fine. Or <laughs> keeping yeah. Flit- Flitwick. He's in this movie. Mm-hmm. And what are the other teachers in this movie? Trelawney's not in this movie. Sprout's not in this movie. Sprout doesn't get introduced into yeah, the Yeah, Sprout's uh, not in this movie. Is it really just those five? It's fucking Snape and Flitwick escaping this movie unfired or sacked if you're I British. Mean, I don't know if I would ever fire Flitwick. Flitwick is like. Oh, he's going to. No, no. He's going to escape all the movies unfired. Snape will yeah. not. I don't think. Um, Filch. Filch gets fired. Uh, for I, to be fair, I forgot he was employed. That's how fired he was in my head. This yeah, <laughs> was done. But um, yeah, for failing to properly monitor the third floor corridor and also for threatening the students with torture, uh, those both seem <laughs> not so bueno to me. 
All right. I'm just quickly looking through our notes as well. Shout out to the music. It's great. <laughs> Especially the opening theme, iconic, still iconic to this mm -hmm. day. The rest of the score yeah. also awesome. Mm -hmm. Can we all agree on that? So we don't have to spend an hour on it. I, I mean, it's it's uh, spoiler alert. It's one of my winners, so I will talk at length about it. Perfect, uh, wonderful. I just saw it in your. <laughs> I just saw it in the topics for discussion as well, and so I, I just yeah. wanted to make sure we got to it. Um, the <laughs> chemistry of the three leads we already talked about, and the rest of it we already talked about. I think it's fine. Cool. We're yeah. moving on. Uh, Rachel, who is your uh, living person winner? Oh, I was boring today. I went with Harry. Harry I did Potter. as well. He does. I'm it's... trying not to give it to Harry whenever I can, but he undeniably wins this movie. Yeah, th this is this one's all him. I he, think you he know... escapes the Dursleys, and then he escapes prosecution for the murder <laughs> of <laughs> Professor Quirrell. He's just living large. He's living. He has a giant vault full of money. He buys all the candies on the trolley. He makes the best yeah. possible friend. He gets sorted into Gryffindor. He wins this movie. He just spends the entire book leveling up. Yeah. It's unreal. He's a Quidditch superstar on day one. There's no other. Yeah. Like, I try to find the winners that aren't Harry. There's not even a second place in this movie. No. Which is interesting because I think close. I think in most of the other movies there are other winners. Like I could I, I already know yeah. my winners from the other movies, I think. And I don't think they're Harry in many of them. Maybe one or two more. But like it might be the, yeah. it might be hard to deny Harry Deathly Hallows Part Two. Yeah, <laughs> that might be hard, but like Deathly Hallows Part One is probably Neville. If I'm just going off the top of my head, Ooh, but you know yeah. what? There's other options. Whereas in this movie, there's no other options. I think Harry Potter is the undisputed. Yes. No, he takes it. it. I mean, we the book is in his head. We don't know anyone else well enough to know how important this first year is for Harry. He goes from being like a little orphan under a staircase to a star athlete rich boy with good grades good friends and an unblemished cr criminal record so 10 out of 10 no comments wonderful <laughs> what is your and i definitely did not spoil it what is your uh, place thing concept theme winner your non-person okay. winner so I, for the movie in particular, I gave it to the soundtrack, to the music uh, that was done by John Williams. Uh, I, I think it's done by a few different people over the course of the series, but the main themes were all done by John Williams. I think the visual aspects of the movie are top tier, but there is nothing in my experience that creates a mood like music. And I think, especially in this movie, you know, I talked about creating a foundation. You see things and you... Um, you can kind of acknowledge them, but with how he, with how John Williams kind of orchestrates his pieces, you know how you're supposed to feel about them uh, based on how the music sounds. So um, if you think about Hedwig's, Hedwig's theme, which is the most classic one uh, that you hear in your head when you think of Harry Potter, uh, this is a bit music nerdy of me, so I'll try and, and do it really quickly. It's written in a minor key, but it, which is usually taken to be like a little creepy, a little off-putting, like unsettling. That you can really dive into that aspect of it, but it still has like a quick pace. It's like a little jaunty, and it has like an almost regal melody. And then as it goes, like the strings start to swell, and it gives you like a sense of flight and urgency, and it feels magical. So I think. Um, obviously the visuals in this movie are amazing, 
I don't think it has the same impact without the music. And I think it just creates an incredible environment and an incredible world that I love to be in. So I give this one to music. Wonderful. Uh, my non-person winner, I didn't know what to call it. I went with contemporary world blending. It's the same thing that I think I'd probably pick as the winner from the book if I had to pick like an overall book. That's maybe a fun mm -hmm. thing for us to just pick overall book one winners as well. We never got the chance to do that. But mm -hmm. I don't think it does it as successfully as the book, but it is a monumental challenge. A monumental challenge to create a world that is simultaneously contemporary and accessible to the real world and feels like the real world and also feels like a world where magic exists and is coexisting with the other world. These aren't two separate worlds. These are coexisting worlds that are happening together and you can't index too far into one or the other. The whole thing falls apart. Like you can't make everything too magical because then you have to be, there's no way the muggles wouldn't notice this. There's no way the wizards wouldn't have just taken over. Like what is going on? But you can't have it be so contemporary that the magic feels out of place. And you're like, this is, there's no way there's a wizarding school, like just past the bricks at a pub. Like that doesn't, right? Like the, the, the mm -hmm. fine line that the world of Harry Potter is built on between the contemporary kind of world that we live in and the world that we believe is just on the other side of the veil or just on the other side of the bricks or just on the other side of whatever. That's just like, it's almost like interstellar where he's looking through the bookcase. Like it's just pulled back yeah. from our real existence. It's so hard to do. And both things mm -hmm. have, both mediums have a different challenge in the book. JK has to write it in a way that everyone has a different imagination. They're going to visualize these things differently. So she has to write mm -hmm. it in a way where your imagination simultaneously runs away with you and stays grounded. And that's really hard. And in the movie, that's a lot easier because you have physical sets to like orient people and people can see what it is. The mm -hmm. intention is, but then that comes with all the constraints of physical sets and movie making. You need a budget. You need people who can make the sets. You need a place to, you need a real life place to set it. You need people to paint it. You need, you need to fit the cameras in there. You need to choose how to film it. Like these are all, you can't be in the character's head. So all of this wonder and whimsical and magicalness has to be expressed via the sets in the world. It can't be expressed. Like you can't just have Harry looking at a thing and going, oh, this is magical. I've never seen this before. Like both mediums have different challenges. And while I think the book is more successful, I think the movie had just as hard of a challenge blending these two worlds and did it really well. Absolutely agree. I'm still waiting for my Hogwarts letter. And I think that's just absolutely a testament to uh, what a job they did. Wonderful. All right. Well, that was the first movie. Was this the podcast on the first movie I thought we were recording? Mostly, but not all of it. Some of it went <laughs> off the rails and all of it is staying in the final podcast. If you enjoyed this, there's a whole bunch of things you can do. There's places you can leave reviews. If you're going to leave reviews, that say, like, fuck, this podcast about Harry Potter was great. The one about politics was not. You can just email it to us. Don't drag us through the algorithm like that. Let's dive deep pod at gmail.com for all your emails, uh, good or bad. Or if you want to send us, what were, what were they sending us? Um, reasons why Harry shouldn't be charged with murder. Yeah, yeah. defenses. Defenses, like defend Harry in the court of mine and Rachel's opinion about whether Harry murdered mm -hmm. his professor or not. That's something you can send a let's dive deep pod. Oh, and people complaining about bleak house, please complain about. Bleak oh house yeah. Complain about bleak house in <laughs> the email as well. We'd love to read them. I think that's it. The next podcast, yeah. whenever we make it and send it to you will be chamber of secrets back to the book. <laughs> and no matter how unhinged we get one or two chapters is less to deal with than a whole movie. So yeah, we'll see you then. Thanks everyone.